Thanks for joining us on episode four of the Toe and Bar podcast. Today I'm joined by Andrew Monks. And what I like about Andrew is he always takes what we give him on the chin and he'll swallow two if you pay him enough. Hello, Andrew. How are you doing? Yes, yeah, fuck off. <laughs> and we're also joined by That's Ollie Downs. All, all, all you're getting from me. And we're also joined by Ollie Down, whose politics seem gone about the Falklands like he was there. But in reality, he thinks Belgrano is a pasta sauce. Hi Ollie, how you doing? All good, mind. <laughs> and of course, me, uh, Luke Smith, um, controller of the edit, and therefore it doesn't matter what you guys are going to say in response to that. Um, <laughs> typical format today. We're going to run through the clips. Uh, we've got a couple of new features as well. One called Questions for Leicester, in which I'm going to ask Ollie three questions based on his life in Leicester. Um, and we've also got the Fixed Memory Man coming up. And we'll end on a quiz. Um, this week's quiz is, I dare say, better than last episode's, which is a pretty low bar, I think. Um, we've also got the um, the entries, the, the, the competition entries for um, for your funny stories, in which the, the best one, the one that we, that we deem the best, will win the Matty Dolan side boots. And then at the end of the podcast, we'll announce the, the winner of the Twitter retweet competition, because truth be told, I forgot to do that. I'll have to do that during the week. So this week, we'll start with Ollie's first clip. Ollie, why don't you let us know what you brought? So I, this week, I bought the, the Totem Bar. It is... Um, what is it again? <laughs> uh, it's... <laughs> no, I, I'm, I joke. Yeah. So it's... it's uh, polished, polished, boys, polished. Professional operation. Oh, stop so, saying that! Luke becomes professional. Luke becomes professional and has an intro, and then Ollie just suddenly breaks into a quivering mess. <laughs> it goes to shit 20 seconds after the intro. <laughs> <laughs> we are we are nothing if not consistent. <laughs> yes. And this week I bought a clip from TMS Test Match Special. It is the commentary box when Ben Stokes hits the winning runs against Australia in that famous knock at Headingley in 2019. Glorious day. Where, where were you, Muncie, on, on that famous day? I was actually at home, watching the game at home. I was, um, I was at the Reading Festival. Were you? Yeah, I was sat, sat in, it was like dusty, it was horrible, everybody stunk. Because it, it was a sun, I think it was that Sunday, so it was like the last day, been there for the best part of the week. And uh, got a bit excited when the winning runs went in, although I was listening to it on TMS, so I actually did hear the commentary, like, firsthand. But the video is, is cracking, I think. Yeah, that video shot where he, where it's like up, up under the under the wicket, basically, isn't it? Like, like wicket yeah. level, and you see him like raise the bat, and then he raises the bat and goes mad, and then the crowd realise what happened, and then almost in cannon behind him, they start yeah. doing the limbs, and it goes mad. It, iconic piece of imagery, that really, really, really good bit of sports sports um, television, I think. That which kind when of he hits it before he knows it's four as soon as it's off the bat because yeah. all the fields are they need one to win. So he pierces the guy. He, he knows as soon as he's hit. He doesn't even look. He just throws his arms aloft. And uh, but we were the one of the reasons I liked it was because we got a bit of a thing, haven't we, about like unbiased commentary. So Agnew was going absolutely potty. <laughs> Alistair Cook, and that's his. Alistair Cook doesn't look that excited, but for him, that's really exciting. Yeah, I was going to say that's basically. Yeah, he doesn't get. It. He doesn't do excitement. He the fact he had a little smile was probably the equivalent of me running down the street with my shirt off. I think the most English bit of commentary occurs in that video. <laughs> it's like, get in, England can't lose. <laughs> if that isn't English sport in a nutshell, <laughs> I don't know what is. <laughs> no, absolutely. And Jack Leach is uh, cleaning his, uh, cleaning his glasses. It's got, so we speak about like things that maybe rule you out of 
a certain sport, if you're trying to see a little cricket ball coming down at you at 90 mile an hour, not having 20-20 vision, and therefore needing glasses, it's got to be a massive impediment. And to even score a run. Probably why he bats at 11, to be fair. It's <laughs> <laughs> probably why Stokesy was like, do not, under any circumstances, play any shot to make sure that he's facing any balls. One run in 90 minutes worth of batting on it, something like that. Well, that yeah, but he was just, it was just a case of hanging in there with, with Stokes, wasn't it? Yeah. And also you got, didn't he didn't he have a higher batting average in that series than David Warner? Yeah, yes he did. Yeah, he did. Not not that that was particularly difficult. Batting average or strike rate? Bat, batting average. Yeah, batting average. It's it's strike because I think he he, he scored he scored something like thirty runs and only got out once. Yeah. So it was David Warner was out like every other. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was somewhat like Jack Leach averaged about nine and a half, and um, David Warner averaged just over nine. No which way. everyone opens the batting. So you've got to be, if you want to be averaging in the 40s, if you want to open the batting at least. And David Warner managed to average nine. Stuart Ball got, got him out virtually every time as well. Now, can I just ask a question on behalf of the listeners? And when you sent this over, I had the same reaction. How many more times are we going to cover this specific Ashes test that England didn't win? The, the we haven't covered this the first time. It came up It came up at length in the first episode. We've spoken about that Ashes test I don't know how many times. And when we were talking about the... um, We haven't, we haven't covered it as documentary yet, but we were talking about... Was it, well, it's not the edge. Was it the edge or um, uh, the test, wasn't it? The death of a gentleman we did, yeah. Yeah, but we spoke about the test as well, didn't we? And we spoke we about have that briefly, yeah. Really, yeah. But yeah. that is an outstanding documentary series as well. Maybe yeah. Monkson should have picked that one instead of a series that's... It was three well, we've hours done cricket. We've already done cricket, haven't yeah. we? Yeah. So. I, feel like, I feel like we've done this specific... Maybe not this specific moment in, 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 in cricket coverage that we've spoken about, but I feel like we've, 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 I think we've rinsed England versus Australia for content as much as we can. But I would say I disagree with the video title of this. The, the video title of this says the better than TV. And this, it, we, we spoke about it already. It took us less than five seconds to move away from the radio coverage of TMS and start talking about the television coverage. I think. I honestly think you, you yeah. don't get the full picture without watching it on the telly on that. And I love TMS. And, you know, TMS was my route into test cricket. I, you know, I listened to it on the Ashes when I was at school, the school bus on the way back from the school bus, et cetera, to, to school, whatever, on at lunchtime, et cetera. That's how we got cricket coverage in 2005. Um, and then you'd watch the highlights in the evening. So I love TMS and I think it's a, it's a British institution. And I think it's, 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 it's like the web, it's like the weather report, isn't it? Or the shipping forecast. You can, you can listen to cricket, not understand a word about cricket and love TMS. And that was me for 10 years. And um, I mean, to be honest, it's still a bit of me now. But I think visually, it was—I mean, what a moment! What a moment of, of, of that summer as well for English sport. It was—it was fantastic, wasn't it? It's—it's it's a real shame that what's gone on this summer with the fans not being allowed in. So I do think maybe there was a real buzz back around cricket in England after last summer with the World Cup win. And although we lost that Ashes series, it was um, there were some really iconic moments in there that it's. It's a shame that we haven't been able to build on that momentum that was built. Yeah, they claim it was the best, the best innings by any English batsman of all time. What I, I bow to both of your knowledge on cricket. Where would you? I know obviously both of them at Headingley is the only other one that, that springs to mind. Where, where would you guys rank it? It's, it's the best knock I've seen. Yeah. So I mean, for me, it was a, a an unbelievable knock. Don't be wrong. When you consider all of the um, pressure of having to bat with a tail. It's an Ashes test. Was it one of the best knocks I've, I've ever seen? Top five, certainly. I, I think, as you say, Botham's knock at Headingley is probably better. 
Um, why is that? Just before before that, why is that? Botham basically was an awful lot of pressure. He was captain previously in the previous tests, which we'd lost. So he he lost the captaincy mid mid series, which is almost unheard of. Um, to, to 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 you know to replace your captain halfway through a series. And it was almost like the shackles and the pressure had come off of him. And he went out and played this unbelievable knock. But not only did he play this unbelievable knock, he also took wickets as well. In the third innings, in the, in, in, Yeah, to, to get England into a position where they could be, that they could win. So for me, that's probably still better. Um, I also think Freddie Fintoff's knock that he, that, that, that he did when, in, in the Ashes, when Michael Warns boys won the, um, won the Ashes was probably up there with, with with Stokes' knock, again, because he got them into a position to win the game rather than just go out and play your shots. There wasn't an awful lot of pressure on Ben Stokes, if you, you know, in my opinion. Nobody expected us to win from there. Just, he was just says, go out and play your shots. And, he, and that's what he did, you know. Um, I think if we would have gone on and won this series, it might have made it a bit, a bit more of a, a, a crucial that, knock. We did. We, we that, lost that, the series. That doesn't so make the knock any worse, though, does it? No, 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 no. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's an unbelievable innings. But when you rank it in importance, you know, when you look at Ian Botham's innings, we went on to win the Ashes. When you look at Flinsop's innings, we went on to win the Ashes. When you look at Stokes' innings, we then played the next test and were, and were bloody awful. Yeah, I think, you I know. think you're right. I think with, with, when you're looking at all time things of anything, of any sport, I think context is, it plays such a massive part of where you rank it historically. I mean, there are so many goals that are scored that are, are unbelievable. And then you, you, you realize they're played at a shit level and you think, well, we can't, can't go towards the best goal scored of all time. Or this manager, he's, he's done well in League One and League Two. You can't go down as, as a great manager because it, the, the context isn't there. Does that make sense? So like, if you don't go on to win the series, yeah. I, I, maybe I agree with that to you without, without, with, you know, complete, coming from a position of complete ignorance on, on Botham's knock and, and a little bit of ignorance on, on Flintoff's knock. I think, I think I agree with that. If you don't win the series, it counts for nothing, ultimately, doesn't it? Yeah, you know, and Peterson played some unbelievable knocks as well, where we went on and win series from them. You know, it's it's, it's a bit like scoring a hat trick and losing four three. You know, it's it's great you've got a hat trick, but at the end of the day, it counts for nothing. That's one nil to you, lot then, isn't it? Do you, know, but do you, do you agree with that? <laughs> do you agree with that or not? Uh, no, no, I don't. To be fair, because I think football's a little bit different to cricket because that was. You, it's probably the best attack in the world at that time, and he's literally getting down on one knee and switch hitting the ball for six. It, it is, it's not like you're playing on the local park against some bloke who's bowling 20 mile an hour and he's absolutely pie chucker. There's the best attack in the world. He gets down on one knee and switches, hits Pat Cummins for six. I think it doesn't get any bottom, Sorry, on the, on the context argument, you've also got to realise that he is up against the bottom of the order in, with, well, sorry, he's batting alongside. Um, the bottom of the order as well, and he's the, the game management that allowed him to to get that 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 score and and, and win that, that test match was um, something perhaps that Bochum and Flintoff didn't really have to to contend with. So I think that's probably a a ball in the field or or you know a ball in the uh, the arm of um of of Stokes there. Because what he was do- what he was looking to do, and I've never seen anyone do it so successfully, was he'd take at least four balls of the over and then try and get out the other end and try and give Jack Leach only one ball or two balls to face. And that's quite a skill because that puts you off your natural game that you're not just trying to play it. You're not trying to play normally. You've got a, that, as you said, game management was a massive part of that. So do we, do we now bow to the fact that comparing 
comparing things like this, moments of greatness against other moments of greatness, is is nearly futile. You're comparing apples and oranges. Maybe that's the case here. Without doubt, especially in football, I say it all the time. If you so you can, let's just use Pele and Messi as an as an example. If you if Lionel Messi played when Pele was playing, Pele would be and like the best player. Switch it round. The rules, the physicality of the game, it becomes it's almost an unrecognisable sport. A lot of sports have changed so much, but fundamentally in football, the rules have changed. Yeah, yeah, completely different sport now to what it was twenty years ago. Let alone it's completely different. I mean, in, back in Pele's day, you count your goals in your garden and in training. So you know, it's a completely different sport. It's, it's I don't know, it's, it's bizarre. I, I, I don't, I don't, I don't rate him at all. If I'm honest. Oh, mate. I <laughs> you, can, you can look like that all you want. For me, Pele is not in the top five greatest players of all time. You say we can look like that all we want. We're not the ones saying something mental. So we'd have to justify <laughs> why we're... It's not mental. I can, name you like, five better than, I can name you five players better than Pele. Go on, then. Easy. Just just play your... Head like that. I'm, 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 I'm. Just to play your, your own well, game. Messi, what? Ronaldo and... Ren- Messi, well, Ronaldo. Messi, Ronaldo and um, Maradona to start. Well, there's three. So your bang, 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 bang theory's Franz gone. Beckenbauer for me. <laughs> Yeah, Franz Beckenbauer for me. Franz Beckenbauer was a better player. Um, uh, do, 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 what's his name? George Best is a better player. What than Pele? That's five. Yeah. Yeah, George, George Best was a genius. If George Best didn't play for Northern Ireland, Dan would have been out there as one of the, you know, certainly, probably, without, without the best player ever. So you can either go for right, certainly, without, probably, or without doubt. doubt. You can have all three there. <laughs> <laughs> without that, without him going, George Best was an absolute genius. You know, Puskas is probably a better player than Pele. I felt uh, I've, I've I've lost track here. I, I've opened up with a clip of TMS, and we've ended up discussing. <laughs> <Pele>. <laughs> yeah, to be fair, do you reckon that's the TMS coverage done then? Anyone, anyone got any more to add on it? <laughs> so, so we've worked out that I'm not bringing any uh, long jump related clip. <laughs> I'm not bringing any more cricket, especially Ashes-related clips. I'm Ashes 2019. That... You can bring anything else, but Ashes 2019, I think we, we, we've exhausted that for maybe a, maybe four episodes. If you thought that clip was bad, look at the state of the one and my second one I bought. Oh, mate, I cannot wait to talk oh, about it. Oh, no, I'm looking forward to that. The fucking goffs. Yeah, no, I, th- I think Pele, Pele in the, in the um, commentary box of Chris and Martin Jenkins is done. Right. Andy, we're going to move on to your clip now. What's your, uh, what's the first thing okay. you So, um, bit of a, a niche sport, I suppose you could say, but a, a sport that I, I absolutely love, um, frequently go and watch, uh, when I can. Um, it's probably one of the best ever speedway heats you'll ever likely to see. Whether, you know, I know a lot of criticism of speedway is it's basically a race to the first corner. And then every bike just runs around in order and there's no overtaking, uh, which is complete rubbish, um, particularly in the modern era. Um, and this one, this, this clip absolutely, uh, encapsulates that. The lead changes about seven or eight times during the four laps and the guy that actually wins it going into the last lap is actually last. Um, he goes on the outside, Max Frick goes on the outside and gets a lot of grip from the, from the dirt out there and flies around and, and takes it on the, on the tapes, an absolutely brilliant race. It's actually got my favourite team, the Somerset Rebels, and unfortunately we're on the wrong end of that. Um, and yeah, absolutely, I, I absolutely love speedways. A brilliant sport. My question: 
you're a massive Gloucestershire fan in the cricket and you've managed to support Somerset Rebels. Well, it's the closest to Bristol. That's true, that is true. Um, the Somerset, the Somerset Robins is who I was brought up, uh, brought up watching. My old man would take me to watch the Summer, um, Swindon Robins. Um, which is a bit of a trek on a night time when you're 10, 12 years old. You know, my old man would take me on a Saturday, they had a, a mate in. Make um, absolutely fell in love with it. What? You'd make you walk to Swindon? The speedway? No, he was, no, <laughs> in the car. Um, then, then I said, then the, the New, Newport had a team, the Newport Wasps, and uh, they unfortunately went, went bust about seven or eight years ago, I suppose. And from the back of that, the Somerset Rebels were born, and a lot of the Newport riders, um, including, um, the, one of the guys in that, in that, in that race, Jason, Jason Doyle, um, who was the Somerset captain, he went down to, to, to from Newport, um, and, and bought the team up, and, uh, it's, it's a brilliant, brilliant night out. If, if ever want to do something, it's cheap as chip, 15 quid to get in. You know, you've got a good two and a half hours of entertainment. It's, it's just a brilliant night out. Plenty of beer. Superb. It is, it is good. I've been, I've been once to watch a meeting, but I do, it's quite often on Eurosport, isn't it? Um, so well, BT, BT have got the rights for it at the moment. Is it, yeah, it, it does frequently um, change, and uh, a, change channels. But it's, it is good fun. I, does, what I like yeah, about I mean, the Grand Prix. Of the bikes. Sorry, say again. That's why I lost you. I said what, what I like about Speedway is the smell of the bikes. They, they, obviously they're the old two stroke en- the two stroke engines. Yes. And it's, sm- it smells so yeah, good. Which probably says a lot about me that I love to be the most unenvironmentally Obviously, due to this being a um, audio-only podcast, the listeners won't be able to see that. But Luke's currently sat back in his chair. He looks so <laughs> bored. <laughs> if if that is the if that is the it's got to be the most unenvironmentally friendly sport going. Oh, without doubt, I'm surprised there's not extinction rebellion outside. Probably can't say that. Uh, it's noise pollution, sounds, but you know, smell, the fumes, the smoke, everything. It's what makes it brilliant. If that's the best seat of the year. For me, Speedway is absolutely not worth watching. I've been three times. I've watched the Ipswich Witches, and I, 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 these are my notes here. <laughs> and the Romantics like to go on about the noise and the smell and the crowd. If I wanted any of those things, I'd just go for a night out in Newport and save myself a 15 quid. <laughs> uh, bearing in mind, we, got, we, we, we might have a, a, quite a large Newport listening base now. We want to be taking the piss out of Newport too much. You'd be getting found out. Balaclava or not. Newport is Newport is a good night out, but it stinks and it's full of burning rubber from all the burnt out cars on the uh, on the main road on Coronation Road. But for me, the, the people that I don't understand how you get into Speedway because for me, the people that start Speedway as, as kids are those sort of energy drink drinking layabouts who sort of ride bikes in lieu of a shag and a personality, and quite often a bath. And it takes a certain type of person for me to find fish going around a goldfish bowl entertaining. And for, I find Speedway is exactly in that in that caliber. It's just People turn in left for a minute, and people find that it's, it's so boring. And any listeners, we'll publish the list to the, play, to the playlist. I'd skip this one. I'd skip the speedway. It might be only be a minute, but... Oh, no, I'm not Luke's come up with another incredibly no, cool take. No, I'm not that. Yeah. No, I, mean, I got into it when I was a kid. I mean, obviously, being us, you know, being Bristol Rovers fans and all that, obviously, it used to be down Eastville. You know, the Bristol Bulldogs were down Eastville. Um, that's how a lot of the guys in Bristol got into it. Um, but a, a very controversial track Eastville was because there's a lot of people, a lot of riders died 
Eastville because first bend was very sharp and there was literally a brick wall at the end. So if you couldn't get around the bend quick enough, you basically went head first at 40 mile an hour into a brick wall. Well, to, that, to me, that doesn't sound controversial. That just sounds really dangerous. <laughs> it is. That's why it's, honestly, a lot, a lot of the, um, the, the um, American riders and the Scandinavian riders wouldn't refuse to ride there. The Aussies well, they loved it. They thought they, it was they, brilliant. They didn't fancy going to Eastville on a Tuesday night. This is it. They, they, they didn't fancy a cold night in East Eastville. Oh, Tuesday yeah, night, so yeah. But no, I, I, I'm not having anything to say to anyone against, against Speedway. It's a brilliant sport. It's a, you know, naught to 60 in about four seconds with no breaks. You say about four years of energy drinks, they've got some bollocks, I tell you. Yeah, but they only get on the bikes in lieu of a fucking shag or a personality. That's the only reason you start getting into things like motocross or Speedway, because you have to get on a motorbike to look cool in front of birds. Otherwise, and, and, and the crowd's exactly the same. You've got a bunch of 50-year-old people in there watching something go around in circles. And that's fine. I, I'm not knocking it. If that's what you're into, I wouldn't ban it. But you've just got to be aware of it. You've got to be aware of the social conditions that you get into. And it's it stinks. It's loud. It's boring. It's repetitive. It's the same thing for two hours. Everything lasts for a minute. And it's it, it's it just isn't fun for me. I just, yeah. Sorry, are, we, are we talking about speedball your sex life here? <laughs> Everything lasts for a minute. Christ, am I going twice? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and I verge uh, based on that as well. You've you, you've asked for a motocross bike for Mummy for Christmas. <laughs> what, what, what Luke meant to say was that he really loves Speedway and he he can't wait for the next season to start and he can go start watching again. I, what did I even do? What did I even compete for in Speedway? Some vine tomatoes? Like, what's, what's the price? No one's going to take the piss anymore. No one's going to, what do they, what do they compete for? What do they do? Like, what's the point? Well, it's a league. You've got, you, you've got, you've, in, you've got three, three leagues. You've got the, um, what used to be the elite league. I think it's called the Premier League now. And then you've got the championship and then you've got the conference. Um, there isn't really any promotion and relegation because a lot of it is down to whether or not the teams can afford to go up a league or not. Um, but yeah, the, the, the top league is, 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 is a, is a quality. Quality watch. Somerset had a spell in the top league, but have then gone back down to the, the Premier, the, the one below, because they couldn't afford the, the the wages, basically, based on the, the crowds they were getting. Um, but I tell you, well worth coming to the British Grand Prix at the Millennium Stadium if you get a chance. You just Absolutely beat the tournament, months. So it's supposed to be a good, a good day out, isn't it? Yeah, superb. Absolutely superb. But yeah, you've got all the best riders in the world right, racing um, under the. Under the roof, the roof's always shut. Just to make that noise and smell even louder and more pungent for you, Luke. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's absolutely have superb. You, have you heard of the Speedway rider Jason Crump? I have. Born in Bristol. He was, yeah. 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 But, yeah, it's, didn't, was his old man Australian, I think? Am I right in saying that? Yeah, yeah, they're both, well, te- technically he's British, because you say he was born in Bristol. Yeah. But, yeah, his old man Phil Crump was riding for the Bristol Bulldogs, um, an Aussie, um, when when he was born, and Jason Pump actually became the uh, world champion. He won the won the world championship. So, technically speaking, we could say we got a Bristolian as a um, speedway world champion. Although he would have been an Austrian at the time. I think we um I think we better move on this for this clip because we might have our first person ever to fall asleep in Totem Bar in Luke. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if, you sort of just from a point about personality there. The good thing about them was he's got a dad, and he was born in Bristol, and that's and that's cause for celebration. It's he's a dull sport for me that. So the totem bar on tour, I'll skip the darts and I'll skip the speedway if that's all right. Who said you were invited? <laughs>
All right, so I'll move on to, to my first clip then. Um, after that fascinating insight into Speedway, move on to some a sport I love even more, which is rugby union. Um, I thought I'd, I'd bring in the David Campisi <laughs> in the, um, I think it's the Rugby Union World Cup of, is it 1999? And it's Australia versus New Zealand. Um, I thought I'd bring that on board because we spoke to Leakey last week and he brought up a clip, um, of, of Wales scoring it at Twickenham and the footwork was, um, was, was Campisi-esque and he got annoyed that, um, that I was sort of comparing it to Campisi <clears throat> and I was doing it in a compliment, complimentary way. And I think this video shows why. I think his, his technical ability, his, um, his, his sort of ball skills, etc. To me, it, it's almost like an opportunity lost that. I think if rugby had gone the way of technical players like Campisi and genuine ball skills winning you matches rather than sort of the heaviest team from the set plays winning you, winning you games, I reckon that's probably a sport I could get on board. Like if they had 15 David Campisis, I think that's probably a sport I could, I could probably watch. But then he was such a, such a genius and such a maverick and such a, one of a kind, but, you know, getting 15 David Campisis might be, might be pretty difficult. But, um, but Ollie, what, what did you make of it? Rugby, we, we all criticised some of these sporting videos that I've bought. Rugby Union is by far the most grating sport I've ever had the mispleasure of watching. I've never actually been to watch a game live and you couldn't pay me. It's, it's actually, it's not even the sport itself. The actual sport's a decent concept. Just that the people, they wear cotton trainers. And they're, they're so up themselves. They got, they have like suede boots on. You can drink, they'll have two pints each. Probably drink each other's piss at half time as well. <laughs> irritating. So the people that surround Rebunion, so irritating. Sorry if anybody listening, which should probably know one, is a fan of Rebunion. But what a terrible sport. Mm, no, I'm going to disagree with you there. I mean, I'm not, I'm not a, a huge rugby fan. You know, I, I, I don't watch the, you know, the Bristols and the Baths and the, the club stuff. But I do, I, I enjoy the Six Nations. I do enjoy the World Cup and I think it's very, you know, tough, hard game. And it's, you know, you've got to be a, of a certain type of breed to, to play the game. You know, I don't think, you know, you see every Joe, every man in the street walking and going, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll go and get in the scrum. You know, it's, I mean, I, 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 I played the game at school. I went to a rugby school, so I had no choice but to play it. Um, I enjoyed it. You know, I used to play on the wing, mind you, as far away from this one as possible. Any sport... Yeah, just give me the one, I'll run away. A- any sport that makes you come out with cauliflower ears, I've, you've just got to question it. It's, it's literally a sport that makes you ugly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> have, have, you, have you seen Martin Keown? <laughs> Ian Dowie. <laughs> yeah, but also, also, have you seen like someone like Chris... Yeah, Ian Dowie, yeah. <laughs> I mean, they're just Luke ugly. Chadwick. But, but also, can we add that those people were ugly before playing football? Yeah, true. But you're talking about no, no, no. Martin Keown broke his nose playing, playing. Then he, you know, all set around get their nose broke at some point. Yeah, he, about... he would have, been, he would have been a male model if he didn't break his nose. <laughs> <laughs> you're talking about earlier on about how it takes like a man to play to play rugby. Did you see the hacker at the start of this video? How pathetic was that? I've never seen a collection of skinnier, whiter blokes do a war dance. It reminded me of like a group of men, <laughs> a group of men celebrating buying a shots on a stag do. It did not look like the hacker at all. It was, it was absolutely pathetic. To be fair, one of the most interesting things I've seen in rugby was when England played New Zealand last year at the World Cup and New Zealand were there doing the hacker and all that and the England players were like encroached on them in the, in the line, didn't they? And I thought it was like, 
semi-interesting. It was on at nine o'clock on a Saturday morning. There's not a lot else to watch. They've they've banned teams. So in this clip, David Campisi he does a Maradona, which we'll come on to in a bit. But he, he does a Maradona. He just fucks off and just kicks the ball into touch over and over again. He doesn't even engage in the hacker. And um, the commentator's like, "Well, yeah, he's probably seen it enough time. He knows the words." But they ban that now. If if you're if you're facing the New Zealand side and they they elect to be the hacker, which is obviously 100 percent of the time, the teams have to stand up to it and have to face it. They can't turn their backs. They can't just line up and you know you know like in football they do the hard one and they'll just line up in their formations. If the New Zealand team decides to do a hacker, you've got to stand up to it. What's the, why? Why do you have to do that? But, well, it's kind of respect a little bit because they, if they England sing that stand there and sing the national anthem, then New Zealand just throw the ball around. They don't do that, do they? So well, they've got their own national anthem. They sing as well. So they do the national anthem and then they get. They, 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 they do too. That's true. I feel like a little, a little dance. Yeah, it's. I say a little. When dance, we've, when we've look on this, to be fair, I don't think they should. I don't think teams should be forced to stand there in a line or in a V or or whatever to to, to watch it. I think if teams want to just block it out and, and go through their own meds because I think you know the hacker so many players say they watch the hacker and they've lost before they start the game and it gives a psychological advantage to a team that you know to a team that, that are, are dominant anyway I think it's uh... I'd, I'd question the psychology of any sportsman that loses a game before they've started because the other team have had a dance <laughs> yeah, no, I agree. I reckon. I, I reckon England. England should do something similar. We could all do like our own version of a traditional, what, like the you know, English dance. <laughs> they wouldn't be that. They would well, be yeah, quite be... clearly. It'd be. It would be <laughs> Morris dancing, wouldn't it? Be, nah. like bird, the birdie song or something. I reckon yeah. there's only one answer here, and that's the bolero. Can you imagine Johnny Wilkinson and Martin Johnson just chucking out a bolero in the centre circle? <laughs> I don't know. I could just see Johnny walking some of his little bells, ribbons, and ding, 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 their sticks. You know, that would petrify every, every any country, wouldn't it? That would. Yeah, I think where they um where the other team had lost before they started, I think England would lose before they start if fucking Johnny Wilkinson's prancing around a maypole. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I agree. Like <laughs> with the ribbons going around, you know. I don't like rugby either. I think I think I've made that pretty clear. Um, but I do, I can appreciate sporting genius. And I think David Campisi was, was that. He was an absolute uh, wizard of a, of, a, of a rugby player. Um, you know, amazing feet, ridiculous hands. And I think if rugby had gone that way, instead of, you know, creatine and, and pre-workout powder, making sure that you win games, I think if, if rugby had gone that way, I think we could be talking, it's a missed opportunity as well. Cause even in the lineouts, you, um, in that, in that video, they don't jump. They still queue up almost like ceremonially. But they don't jump. They they sort of just you know pass it behind them or they, they chuck it over them to the the spare man behind. They don't they don't jump and try and interfere with it. And it's I I go as far as to say like obviously we're in the middle of pandemic and stuff and there's restrictions on our liberty. If you phoned me on Friday and said, Ollie, do you want to go to the rugby Friday night? I'd genuinely rather stay in my house. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I agree. I'd, I'd rather I'd rather self isolate for two weeks on my own than go to watch rugby. So for the record, then Ollie. You said previously that you would watch, if England were involved, you'd watch Tiddlywinks, you'd watch anything, but you wouldn't watch rugby. Uh, no. So, so you are saying that rugby is a lower-grade sport than Tiddlywinks. Well, <laughs> it's difficult, based on what I've just said, to argue it any different way, but therefore that is what I'm arguing, yes. <laughs> I look forward to getting a rugby guest on so we can bring this back up. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm unavailable that week. Can you imagine that? We get a run. <laughs> they just kill us. They just, just yell at us for an hour. Yeah, but due, due, to, due to restrictions, we're, we're not allowed to meet currently, so he can't punch me. Oh, no. But he'd just be yelling <laughs> at us. Oh, we, can, we can wait. We can wait. He'd come up with his own game to make a spunk on our own biscuits and eat it. 
because that'd be fun. He'd probably turn up with a load of piss in a cup and stop, maybe stop drinking it. <laughs> and it, oh, you, we'll do like a boat race. Who can drink the most piss in five minutes or something? Odd bloke by the, uh, the university varsity rugby teams. Odd, odd blokes. However, lovely. I, I went to university with a few of the rugby lads and lived with them for the first year. And they were, they were nice when they weren't in a group, but when they were, you know, they're, they're pack animals, aren't they? And when they, when they get in a pack, my God, they're weird. Well, they're, they're always, they're, most of the time they've got a beard on their shirt or whatever, the ties it, got the tie around their head. What are you doing? <laughs> Could always tell the rugby players in chasers because they were the only ones in shirt and tie. That is, chasers is an assault. So we, we speak about businesses that are probably going to get closed down due to the coronavirus. Chasers would be, humanity would have improved if chasers was, was to be closed down permanently. For me, people are wearing shirts and ties in chasers. Either they've just come from court and have had a positive reaction, or they're rugby players. <laughs> I do say every time I go in chasers, I have to buy a new pair of trainers because I can never get my sole and my shoe off the floor. It's so sticky. What? Did you know, back in the day, before you young whippersnappers were, were able to drink beer, you used to be able to hire shoes at Chasers. You used to be able to hire what? Shoes. What, like bowling? Like when you go bowling? You hire <laughs> <laughs> no, no, because because back in the day, to go out at clubbing, you had to wear shirt, trousers and shoes. You yeah. could put your jeans and your t-shirt and your, you know, and your, and your Reebok classics. You know, you had to have, you had to go in dressed like you were going to the casino. And the number of times people will be up in Kingswood, you know, they'd be in the Weber Spoons and thinking, oh, I'll have a quiet two or three pints. And where it's like the two or three pints turns into seven or eight pints, and suddenly it's two in the morning, and you think, oh, Weber Spoons is closed. Where are we going to go? Let's go to Chasers. Oh, I can't. I got, I got trainers on. So you just roll down the, ch- down the Chasers, and they, and they would hire you a pair of shoes so you could get in. I love the idea of, um, it's a nightclub, it's Saturday night, all the lads have got out of the town, everyone's dancing to, you know, night fever, and then oops, upside your head comes on, etc. And then you've got the YMCA, and then there's just Crossy the clown in the corner <laughs> with his rented shoes on. <laughs> no, there was quite a few of us having to hide it. You know, it was normally, you play football on Saturday, you know, and you you think, oh yeah, I'm going to have a, quite, a couple of beers after football. And then a couple of beers turns into sex, turns into a few more beers, and then before you know it, you know, you, you ended up going to Chasers, and you're, and you're like, well, I ain't got no shoes. You know, oh, there we go. Well, if you go down town, you used to put your socks over your trainers to make it look like they were black. Monksy, how many times did you use the fact that... All the, tri- all the tricks of the trade. How many times did you use the excuse that you'd hired shoes from Chasers for your terrible dance moves then? Luckily, I have never actually had the opportunity of hiring shoes, but I know a few men who have. Um, Sam Cannock, it was a weekly, a weekly event for Sam. You know, he'd always go, oh, I'm only popping out for a couple. When at four o'clock in the morning, he's staggering home with his kebab under his arm and his, and his, um, chaser's spacky shoe still on, you know. <laughs> so this, this, this gentleman seemed to, um, he was a regular in chasers. He was hiring, hiring the same pair of shoes every week then, yeah? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And bearing in mind he's a size 13, you can, he, he probably only was the only one wearing them shoes, to be honest. And in fact, I, I can remember on some weeks he'd even try and squeeze his feet into a size 11 because they didn't have his size or whatever. So you can imagine what he was like walking around. So what, it was like first come, first serve. If you, if somebody else had turned out there with size 13 feet before you, that's it, you're out on the, oh, you're out on the you street. You had to saw him off and wear a size 4 with his toes out. <laughs> well, I'm not being, I'm not, I'm not being funny. They're, they're only going to have a plethora of size 13 shoes, are they? It's not Clark's. Right, so that's David Campisi covered. <laughs> <laughs> So, hang on, let me get this straight. We've, we've gone from TMS to Pele, 
And from David Campesi, The Chasers. <laughs> only on the tote end bar, ladies and gentlemen. Only on the tote end bar. Really? I, I think we, I do think that is going to be the name of this episode. TMS to Pele. <laughs> and Campese to Chasers. <laughs> Right, so to start part two, I thought we'd begin with a new feature, which is questions for Lester. This is where I ask Ollie three questions. Oh, wait, are, we, are we doing this in between the clips? This is yeah, 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 in between the clips. Break it up a little bit. So for to, to start part two, to warm us up a little bit, I thought I'd ask Ollie three questions about life in Leicester. <clears throat> so Ollie, if you had to punch a cow, if you had to, right now, how quickly could you punch a cow from right now? Well, it's going to take <laughs> Not very often I'm lost for words, but that's a fantastic question. Thanks for asking me that. That's really good. Um, well, I'd have to research it, but it's, it's going to take me, I don't know, 15 or 20 minutes to locate a farm. Yeah. Probably first. And then I've got to jump the fence. Yeah. I don't reckon I could do it inside half an hour. Oh. Bear in mind, I'd have to work out where the local farm is. And also, bit of a problem, at the time of recording, it's Eight o'clock at night, it's pitch black. So even once I get there, I've got to find the cow, and I might get attacked before by the cows or the some other animals in the field. I accidentally walk into them and probably startle. So I'd look to do it within half an hour. If I did it in under an hour, I'd be pleased. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what sort of punch would you go for? Would you go? Would you go uppercut? Are you thinking? Are you thinking left hook? What are you thinking? No, I'd probably just go for like I'm doing it, but obviously this is audio only. I'd probably try and jab. Yeah, 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 yeah. Jab and run, jab and run, the old, yeah, rabbit, just the old rabbit punch. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, right, yeah. But obviously not blow the belt or anything like that. No, you can't have that. Can't have that. You've got four stomachs as well, so I mean if even if you went for a stomach shot, they'd have four more. So a jab to the head, yeah, I agree with that. And so I thought no question about cows. Right? Who first discovered that cows gave milk and what the hell was he doing? Are you su- you're not suggesting any impropriety here, Monsieur? Well, I'm just wondering whether or not he was off punching a cow and got it in the wrong place, you know? I think he might be honest. He went, for, went for the stomach shot, you know? Yeah, he yeah. wasn't. Uh, he was a boxer. He was, he, he was a carcass hung up. He punched it in the stomach and that squirted some milk. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. Or maybe he was just a nonce. So, Ollie, question number two. Do you prefer tin tuna in brine or in spring water? I'm probably just going to go for the spring water option. Okay. And well, I think, again, thanks for asking this, and it's so related to Leicester. And I feel like I could tell yeah, you... Yeah, what's the research. Leicester connection there? What do you think? I'd probably go for the spring water, just because it's a bit more natural. I'm not sure on the pricing, if potentially brine might be cheaper. Well, say they were both 50p a kilogram. That's what. Tuna's gone up in price, you know. Yeah, it's expensive, aren't it? So, yeah, if I had... if. I probably don't buy it on my weekly shop very often. I've got a couple of tins in the cupboard, but nothing much. If I had to, I'd probably go for the spring water. Excellent choice, an excellent choice. No real reason. And so, when the sewage works of Leicester find a fatberg, do the residents, like everywhere else in England, find it repulsive, or do they just wait for the next new moon and divvy it out on a barbecue? Can you repeat the question, please? (laughs) (laughs) When the sewage works of Leicester find a fatberg, do the residents, like everywhere else in England, find it repulsive, or do they just wait for the next new moon and divvy it out on the barbecue? I'm going to be honest with you again. Thank you for asking me that. I don't even know what you're on about. <laughs> Mix two of us. 
you know, fatbergs <laughs> in the sewers. They find those big fatbergs full of like congealed fat, condoms, wet wipes, things like that, and they're massive fat things. And they block the, the, the flow of the sewage. Is I didn't the... know. That the... <laughs> I didn't know they were called that. So now, now I know what the, that is. The yeah. question is starting to make a bit more sense. Right. So I'll ask it again. When the sewage works of Leicester find a fatberg, do the residents, like everyone else in England, find it repulsive, or do they just wait for the next new moon and divvy it out on the barbecue? Probably depends which part of Leicester you're talking about, because there's some fantastic parts of Leicester that I would suggest would be as repulsive as anywhere else in the country. Right. However, other certain parts would not hesitate to get it on the barbecue. It's a bit of a delicacy, is it, in parts of Leicester? Local, absolutely local. So when you suggested to me that we do questions for Leicester, I thought there was going to be a joke around Richard III, around a car park, maybe some football rugby banter. And you've researched really well there. And I'm, I think that's definitely a feature we'll keep for next week. I agree. I think so. I think this can run and run. <laughs> so much potential. So that's questions for Leicester there. I think, you know, we found out how long it would take for Ollie to punch a cow, whether or not he buys his tuna in brine or in spring water, and whether or not he eats fatbergs from the barbecue. I think that's quite an insight that no one was expecting from the Toe Bar podcast. Informative as ever. <laughs> so we'll move on to um, your second clip then, Ollie. What are you bringing to the Toe Bar the second time around? So this week, my second clip is of is Powerboat Racing taking place in the Bristol docks. I'm way too young to have ever watched it, but it's in Bristol particularly, it's a bit of a local, a bit of a local legend type thing. And it looks really fun. Well, it does look fun. It also looks really dangerous. It's called The Widowmaker, wasn't it? People, people died doing it. Right. Yeah. That's why it was stopped. Um, I, I do remember it vaguely when I was about 10. And they used to do it, and yeah, some, someone did die, ploughed into the into the into the, the dock wall, and basically was killed instantly. I have actually watched Powerbit Racing before in Norfolk on my holidays, and it, that's a, it's actually a really good sport because there's loads of different classes of of Powerbit Racing, and it's it's actually quite a good spectacle. It's it's really dangerous. We I watched it in a sort of it was a big open expanse of water up in Norfolk, and there was a, one of the boats flipped and they're fearing for the driver of the boat and stuff. And it's actually really exciting. Well, Luke, Luke won't like it because it's basically Speedway on water. Exactly, exactly right. So you, you, this week, you sent your clips in before me. I watched that Speedway and then that sort of, I don't know, somewhat clicked in the brain that I'd, uh, bring a Speedway on water to the Totem Bar this week. I, so, I wanted them to do it, but I want to see them do it with oil tankers. I want to see them try to get them turning in the Bristol Harbour, and the, the loser has to cover some local wildlife and some viable crude. I think that's a much better sport. That that would be that'd be good. Another good sport I've been thinking of would be parvet racing whilst playing darts. Ah, oh, a throwback. That is professional podcasting from Ollie Down. It's almost like we do a bit of research and and put some prior thought into every episode. Almost like it, because we don't. <laughs> almost, almost, almost being the operative word. <laughs> but did you see the crowds? You see the crowds? The Unbelievable crowds. Like 30, yeah. 40,000 people down the docks. I actually sat in Nigel Mansell's black John Player special Formula One car at Paramount Reason. But I bet that sunk. <laughs> I mean, the Wurzels don't get that crowd. 
30,000 people down on the docks to watch ostensibly someone die. And then Andy's, Andy's like, oh, I rode a car once. It's not what you're there for, mate. I don't know why you did it. It was just there. Like, you could sit in it. it There's yeah. a very famous Black John Player special uh, car. Very famous. Very you're, a big, you're a big uh, Nigel Mansell fan, Muncie? No, not really. Not really. I'm not, I'm not really into F1. This was a great clip choice, Ollie. We've got, we've all got to about it. We've managed to get a whole 40 seconds in, and I'd say 20 seconds of it was me just being stupid, suggesting playing it whilst also playing darts. But what's it, what's it? Do they still do Power Movies? I know, I know you said you've seen it, re- is it was that recently or? Last year, yeah. Last year. They tend to lakes now, don't they? Like massive bodies of water. They won't do it on. Yeah, it was it was close harbour. And there was like big runoffs at each end, so that you would be really unlucky to hit a wall. You'd have to have an absolute shocker to hit a wall. How about a cow? <laughs> I'm not even going to um, qualify that with a response. Was it as part of a league, or was it as part of a you know a tour, or was it just effectively just a? Like like a like a, a Red Bull um, street thing that they do, and it's just a one-off event, and the winner is the one with the fastest boat. Like, how, how did it work? Is anyone there? When I watched it, it was a tour, and they were doing various. This this was Bank Holiday Sunday. They were in, I think it was in London on the on the on the Monday. So they go around, and it, this uh, the rowing club or the um, whatever club it was on the side of the water there had sold hospitality and. And it was like a big event, like, it almost felt like a quarter of uh, Norfolk were there. It was it was quite good fun, it was quite good fun. Sit out and watch the boats ride round. I think it was on a Sunday morning, if I, met, I, I remember rightly. But yeah, you're right, it was like a tour. You would go around, it'd be yeah, one on the Thames one week, and then it'd be up in, probably on the Trent somewhere. And yeah. you said there would be lakes and bodies of water and everything. And then it kind of Bristol and all that. It was, it, it was fantastic, it's a, yeah. One of the things I remember as a 10-year-old, not so much the boats coming around, I don't think I'd probably see the guys, but you saw the crowds there. To try and get to the front would have been quite difficult. And I don't suppose a 10-year-old should be sat with his legs dangling over the, the dockside anyway, to be honest. But the atmosphere, it was like a bit of a party, really. There were, you know, stalls and, you know, uh, was, it part of the, was it part of the Harbour Festival? Did they do it in, in that weekend? No, no, no. The Harbour Festival wasn't around in those days. No. What I couldn't seem to work out was roughly what year it finished. I I not, think not, it not. roughly finished at the end of the was it the end of the seventies? Nineteen ninety was the last race. Was it yeah, no, 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 no. I was born in seventy nine, Ollie, so it wouldn't have been finished in the seventies. I said I think I think the one that you got there was eighty nine. Yeah. I think that was probably the one that I went to. Ah. So that would that would have tie in with about sort of ten maybe about ten years old. And I think they, I think Luke's right. I think there was only one more after. Um, so I, I wanted to go. If I remember, I wanted to go and watch it. The one after, and my dad couldn't couldn't take me down. Um, and that was the one when someone got killed, and then then they stopped it. Um, was that was that purely the re- the reason that somebody yeah. died? Yeah, yeah. Somebody he they literally were going around uh, in your clip. Somebody at the wall, didn't they? Yeah, they did. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but this one was a. You know, I think it was he was coming off of a, off of the straight and it just lost control and the and the boat went off to the side and literally he ploughed into the, the, the concrete wall at about you know eighty ninety mile an hour he was literally killed instantly you know it was, yeah yeah he had absolutely no chance you know and then they decided it was it was too dangerous it wasn't wide enough box and so it, it so it was stopped. What I find remarkable is is how despite the fact that 
there's been a couple of licks of paint etc down there the dock side of bristol is exactly the same now as it was back then i know all, all the millions of pounds of investments that have gone into channeling the waterway but it looks the same I, it, it's still it looks a bit of a shithole back then and it's it's a beautiful place now like if you ever come to bristol the sort of the harbour side is really the place to go really isn't it these days but it looks that that uh, what is now m shed and what was then the bristolian industrial museum in the background and it's all that red and black building yeah. it, what is wrong? What was wrong with people in the, in the 80s? What were they doing down there? And they're, they're, it's a good place to hold a fucking environmentally unfriendly race because you're not going to do any fucking damage to that place, are you? I'd say what would be quite cool now is if they reenacted it on a Saturday night, get everyone coming out of Lloyd's Bar and, you know, um, <laughs> Z, or, you know all, all the, the fish on the piano and, and get them in pedlos. Just zooming around, you know, pissed up, pit in pedlos going around, you know, Freddie Fentoff would be right at the front of the floor, you know, on pole position, you know, 18 pints of, 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 of Fasher's gold and then getting your pedlo and zoom around the docks. There was, That's um, we'll talk about entertainment. There was rumours of it coming back. I think the last mayor, George Ferguson, was, um, put his foot down and said, no, we, it's not coming back. But there, there are sort of, there is a bit of a campaign to bring that sort of back. And I think if they can increase the, increase the safety of it and, and, and make sure that it's not quite as environmentally damaging as it was back then, I think there's a case for it because the crowds, the amount of, the amount of people it, it brought down there, I think if, if, if you can sort of almost guarantee that people aren't going to die, it'd be a great little thing to go on and watch, I reckon. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. I, so I, I, as, a, as, a, as a young kid, you know, it was, it was somewhat, you know, a really special occasion, you know, and it was something I, you know, look forward to and wanted to go to. Um, but unfortunately, as you say, the safety quite rightly took, took over and it was, and it was stopped. What sort of, um, time of year was it held? <laughs> I don't know. I would guess it's going to be sort of August, July time. It's going to be summer, isn't it? In the it summer. Looks- You'd like to think so, wouldn't you? Yeah, you know, to get the crowd, you're going to have it hammering down the rain, are you? It's going to be relatively good weather, you know. Um, looking at the footage you got there, as I say, because, you know, I remember it vividly, you know, you know more the atmosphere rather than the, the, the boats going around, you know. Yeah. Being, being quite young. But looking at the footage and the clip there, they were all in sort of short t-shirts, weren't they? And, and shorts, people. They weren't there in their, in their winter, winter jumpers and coats, were they? So. How do you get into powerboat racing? Like, do you just do you just drive a car off a, off a cliff and survive, and then you pretty much that makes you a powerboat racer because you've got to drive out? Like, what 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 what's the entry level drug to to powerboat racing? I, you you must have to own a vehicle similar to Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. I would have thought. <laughs> was it President Truman's amphibious vehicle when he used to drive around in his grounds and not tell the people that he was in the um he was in an amphibious vehicle? So we just drive it straight into the lake, and the um, the person in the car with them would shit themselves, and obviously it would just turn itself into a boat. I think that would be a great way into powerboat racing, wouldn't it? That is, I, I think that's got to be a pretty essential, um, pretty essential bit of kit, a car that can. Uh... Well, James Bond would be good, wouldn't it? Yeah, you could get the uh, the old um, car from Spy Who Loved Me, the old Lotus that turns into a submarine. You'd be you'd be well away. Well, you'd you'd have to, you'd probably win, wouldn't you? Probably the best Bond car. Got to be the best Bond car. I'm not a big, uh, I've watched a few of the more recent ones, but I've not watched them all. Yeah, anything with like exploding pens. Oh, fuck. Is he? What's up to do? Yeah. R.I.P. Sean Connery, of course. Oh, yeah. Good point. Passed away. Not my favourite Bond, but Roger Moore's my favourite. You can't qualify a rest in peace, mate. You can't do, you just can't do that. (laughs) 
<laughs> well, I can because this is these are the facts. He's a, he was an excellent Bond, you know, the original one. We could now well have the yeah, Sean Connery. Roger Moore was my favourite after us. Rest in peace, Nelson Mandela. Not my favourite black man, but a black man nonetheless. How <laughs> 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 the power ratio to Nelson Mandela? <laughs> right next, right. Yep, fine. I've lost that covered. The next clip, Andy, will go with your second clip. What have you brought to Toe and Bar on the second time round? Okay, so my second clip is uh, a story about Ryan Clough, um, one of the greatest managers this country has ever produced. Um, it's a story um, which Mark Crossley told um, regarding uh, Stuart Pearce. <laughs> and basically, to cut a, um, a long story short, Stuart Pierce's family business had an advert in the Forest Program for Stuart Pierce Electricals, which was a uh, business that Stuart Pierce started when he was in on leave. Um, and basically, he brought an iron into the changing rooms and said to Stuart Pierce, Can you go and fix this? Because it's broken for my wife. Uh, and if you don't fix it by Saturday, you're not playing. Um, <laughs> this was shortly after Stuart Pierce had received his first England call. So typical Brian Clough, how to keep players' uh, feet firmly on the ground, um, and an absolute legend of a man. Of all the stories you could have picked from Brian Clough, Man Fixes Iron is up there with the worst ones. It's He, he was a genius, and it's a great way to keep your... But it's a proper product of his time, that story, isn't it? No one is fixing irons these days. You're just chucking them away, and they're going into landfill, and you're buying another one from Russell Hobbs. Brian Clough would cool. still get his iron fixed today. Sorry, man. There's a good, um, and I might even have it as my documentary at a later date, around his time at Forest, and it's Peter Shilton saying when he signed, he signed in, and Brian Clough had a real problem with agents or financial advisors as they were known when they first were on the scene. And, uh, yeah, Brian Clough didn't, didn't like agents because he felt it was like money going out of the game, which is probably proven to be really correct. But Peter Shilton turned up at, uh, Forest to discuss a contract and Brian Clough opened the door his office door to let him in and he was bent behind the door and he was a big squash player and he's just um, he's let Peter Shilton in Peter Shilton's financial advisors walked in behind him and he just put his squash racket out and tripped him up <laughs> I'm, I'm surprised the financial advisor let him let Shilton sign after that yeah I think um, Dean Saunders has got a really good signing story have you heard that one uh when the story of Cluffy trying to sign Dean Saunders for what would have been a British record transfer fee at the time. Have you heard that one? No, I don't think so. I'll, I'll post it on Twitter and digging it out. It's, um, he basically, the agent, Dean Saunders' agent's a fat lad and he tell, he tells him to go and wait in the garden, um, whilst me and Dean talk about football because he doesn't want to talk about football in front of the fat lad. <laughs> and, um, he, he goes all through this and apparently he's bollocks. Obviously, Cluffy had his problems with, with alcohol, um, towards the end and, um, he did, he did when he was trying to sign Dean Saunders as well. Apparently he was, he was bollocks and he was crawling. He's like, Oh, my knees, son, my knees. And he'd crawl up to, 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 um, to Dean and he was like, Um, do you like flowers, son? Do you? Do you like flowers? And he'd go and pick some flowers in the back garden, brought it back in, trying to sign him. Can you imagine you've got the assistant manager of Forest, you've got Brian Clough and Dean Saunders trying to negotiate the top transfer, you know, the, the, the most expensive transfer, British transfer of all time at the time. And Brian Clough's on his knees, giving him a <laughs> flowers from the flower pot outside, trying to sign him. But honestly, you've got to dig that story out. For me, that's the best Clough story, and there are hundreds of them. What a man. I, 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 I somehow managed, 
very much uh, doubt that Jurgen Klopp and Pep Guardiola behave that way. <laughs> of course, very famous. You know, there's, everyone says that um, Trevor Francis was the first million pound footballer in in England. Yeah, which is not strictly correct because the actual fee was nine hundred ninety nine thousand nine hundred ninety nine pounds and ninety nine pence because Brian Clough refused to pay a million pounds for a player. And he actually went in, the the, the, um, the owner of Forest was actually writing a cheque for a million pounds. And he said, he said, no, rip it up. I'm not paying a million pounds for a player. I agreed, 999,999 pounds, 99 pence. And that is what we are paying. <laughs> I, I love Brian Clark, but that just seems yeah. overly pathetic. Well, there's a lot of it that, if it happened these days, you'd look at him and think, oh, what are you on about? But as a product of his time, there's a reason he's considered one of the best managers of all time, yeah. certainly one of the best British managers of all time. But what's often forgotten about Brian Clough is just how good a footballer he was. Do you know his numbers? Yeah. Do you know the stats? Do you know his goal scoring stats? I've got them here. Do you want to know them? He was excellent, yeah. Ollie, do you know how good he was? I, I didn't, to be honest with you. 251 goals in 274 appearances. That's sharp. That is Messi and Ronaldo numbers, that. I mean, it wasn't that. first division, all of it. But a lot of it was was first and second division. Those numbers are unbelievable. It's for forty goals. Did he? I don't think. Did he play for England? No, he played twice for England, which but just about sums up his relationship with England, doesn't it? Twice yeah, and no yeah, goal. Without doubt, the best manager to never manage England. Well, I don't know about that. Alex Ferguson didn't. No, or English manager, English manager. You know, if you're gonna, you know, we talked about having an Englishman managing the national side. You know, Harry Redknapp. You could argue it's probably one of the best, but even he's not in Brian Clough's level. Brian Clough, as a player, he had 40 goals or more in four consecutive seasons. He spent... 40 years or more? In four consecutive seasons. He spent two years out with a knee injury and retired at the age of 29. So he was doing all that at early 20s, late teens, those numbers. He has the highest goals per game ratio of anyone who has scored over 200 professional goals in English football. And he's got two England caps. How, how does that? How, how much does that sum up England after '66? You know, all the way through from '66 all the way through to basically 1990. Like it just sums up that these players who were incredibly gifted, obviously a fucking unbelievable goal scorer, and he didn't play enough. He didn't, he, he didn't play at all for England, really. He had a couple of substitute appearances. Ridiculous. I genuinely didn't. Know, I didn't know that. I genuinely didn't know that about Brian Clough. We do learn some every week on certain bar podcasts, don't we? The most efficient striker ever to play in the English football leagues to have scored over 200 goals and all anyone ever wants to talk about is his alcoholism and his funny stories about fixing irons but as a true football perfectionist you know he pioneered beautiful but effective football he won the first division twice as a manager he won the league cup five times as a manager he won the Watney cup charity shield consecutive european titles he won the super cup you know he lifted two shit teams in forest and derby you know provincial never really that good teams before cluffy got there and to take those two teams to, to to where he took them to, I mean, you're right. He probably is the best English man never to manage England. He's a genius, a genius of a footballer. I think, I think when he was playing, it was when he, when he met Peter Taylor, wasn't it, as well? He was obviously his assistant yeah. manager for years and years. Yeah, at Sunderland. Yeah. He, he, Taylor was a goalkeeper at Sunderland. Yeah. You know, and, and have you seen the Damned United, the film Damned United? I have, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I've seen fant- it. Fantastic film, I think, you know, and the, um, Shows really as well the importance of Peter Taylor to him because when Peter Taylor didn't go with Brian Clough, um, Clough didn't really do 
do anything, you know. And Peter Taylor was that man, I suppose, the, the good cop and bad cop, wasn't it? Brian Clough was the bad cop and, and Taylor was the good cop that kept the players in, in check, you know. The amazing thing in that, in that, in the Leeds United story is when he turns up on the first day, he's like, you can put all your medals in the bin, lads. You won them by cheating. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And to be fair, at what point was that a good idea? Yeah. I mean, clearly, as man managers go, if you're on board with him, then he's going to be the best man you've ever met. He's going to be the best man you've ever met, and he'll do everything, and he'll run through walls for you, and you do the same for him. If you turn up to the champions of England, do have won four of the last six champions, um, you know, Division One champions, they've managed by a guy who's gone on to manage England, and you're turning up and ruffling their feathers. It, it, it isn't a good idea, is it? It isn't. You're right. You're right. But to be fair, I can't imagine David Moyes did that when he turned up to Man United, but even he struggled in that under that scenario where someone's been there for a lot of time and been really successful. I do think that is the definition of poison chalice in football. When you come in after such a successful manager yeah. as Don Revy was, awesome. yeah, I think I think to be honest, you know, when he said put all your all your trophies in the bin, it wasn't a dig at the players, was it? It was very much him having a dig at Don Revy because he admired Don Revy as the, the best yeah. manager out there. And obviously, when um, Derby played Leeds in the Cup, and Revy completely ignored him, didn't he? And it was after that that. Clough basically said, "I'm going to I'm going to prove to you that I am as good a manager, if not a better manager, than you." And, and I think that was a dig at Revy, not a dig at the players there. And yeah, but his problem with Leeds as well was that um, prior to one of their European Cup games, they played Leeds in in the days before, and I can't remember which player it was on both sides. One one of the Leeds players kicked one of the Derby players up in the air. And uh, resulted in an injury, which meant he missed. I imagine it's probably Billy Bremner. I don't think. <laughs> yeah, you, if I had to hazard a guess, I would probably <laughs> suggest so. But yeah, it's it's good. Damn United's a good film, actually. I, it's fantastic. His, his, his family questioned how historically a- accurate it was, um, and I don't really know. To say you have to you have to caveat how entertaining it was versus the family's feelings of how it portrayed Brian Clough. Yeah. The man he was, and the, the really sad thing about Brian Clough is he never made it up with Peter Taylor. Uh, well, it wasn't Peter Taylor, what was his name? Peter Taylor, wasn't it? I'm Peter Graham Taylor. Taylor. Yeah, yeah. it's just a magic. They fell out at the end, yeah. And he never made up with them. And then when Peter Taylor died, the first person to ring Peter Taylor's daughter was Brian Clough, and he was there at the um, he was there at Peter Taylor's funeral, um, you know, and he was he was he was emotionally you know distraught by it that he never managed to make it up with it, and he he dedicated his autobiography, which I've ordered actually. Um, having having watched this clip and watched a few others, I was pretty ignorant of Clough. I knew obviously what he'd achieved as a manager. I didn't know how good a player he was. Um, and I, you know, as a fascinating life, you know, he, he struggled with alcoholism. You know, he struggled with his relationship with the with the FA for for years and years. And I, I think he, he's got a fascinating story to tell. And I think maybe a more historically accurate, or maybe even a historically impartial documentary on him would be, would you know, Amazon or or on Netflix are chucking out sports documentaries all the time. I think something like that. On Brian Clough would be would be fascinating watching. I, I agree. Mean, I mean, it, yeah, I mean, what he achieved, I don't. I mean, people talk about Alex Ferguson, who obviously is an unbelievable manager, but to take and again, the problem you've got, I suppose, is we're comparing different eras. But to take Forrest up from literally the relegation places in you know in Division in Division Two, as it was in those days. I was Derby. It was, it was Derby. He took Derby. Sorry. Sorry, not to get Derby up from Division One, Division Two into Division One, um, to then win it, you know, after. win it, 
is, you know, in his business, is remarkable. And then what he did with Forrest to win the European Cup and then to defend it, bearing in mind it wasn't like it is now, is to leave, where you can afford to lose a game and have a bad performance. It was a straight knockout tournament over two legs. Well, you have one bad 90 minutes, you're out, bang. So to win it back-to-back, it's quite remarkable, really, you know. And we say it's Fergie is probably, and I, I, I don't disagree with this, it's probably the greatest British manager. But he only won the European Cup once. Twice. He won it twice. Oh, what, the Champions League? Not, 99 to 2008, Fergie won it. Was that right? So he won it twice. So he won it twice. So he won it twice. So it's on a par, you know. To, to me, I don't know. I mean, it's a tough one whether Clough's a better manager than Ferguson or Ferguson's a better manager than Clough. I just see plus and, uh, and negatives of both. I, I, I don't know, and I, I wouldn't want to comment on that. I think for, 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 for Clough to do what he did with Forrest, I think what he did with Forrest and what he did with Derby were, it puts paids to, for me, any discussion about this project big picture. I think we're never going to see it again anyway. It's never, ever going to happen again. Someone taking, you know, so that'd be like someone taking Wickham now, who was second bottom after a point after nine games, and then taking them up um, but this season and then winning the Premier League next season. It's not going to happen now. If you take the, 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 big, the big picture and you give the top six now voting rights, the top six now, Man City were in the third division for years. The top six is a fluid entity. Man United were relegated during the time that Clough was managing Nottingham Forest. It's ridiculous, this, 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 this big project, big picture. And to enshrine rights for, for just because they're the current top six, you know, Nottingham Forest were considered the biggest team in England for, for 20 years. Look where they are now. It's ridiculous. And I think well, if that happens, we'll never, ever see anything like it, it stifles the development of managers like Brian Clough. And I think to, 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 to reject us of the opportunity to see somebody like that again is, is, is absolutely, regardless of the money involved in the game, is criminal. These people don't understand the history and don't understand what this sport means and the characters this sport can produce. It is absolutely scandalous that he's even been considered. I think Brian Clough, if you shine a light through the Brian Clough prism, lovely little metaphor that, if you shine a light through that prism, the whole thing falls to shit for me. whole thing falls to shit. A genius. Absolute genius. Completely. And as you say, like we discussed, some of the other geniuses like Ronnie O'Sullivan, Phil Taylor, got that edge to them, haven't they? They they aren't perfect people. They're not these ideal people that you're going to hold up as role models. They've got that edge to them. They've got that things that they do where they piss you off and they think, what are you doing? You can't be acting like that. You know, you are Ronnie O'Sullivan. You are Brian Clough. You can't be going around punching fans like you did that time, you know. But it's those things that make them the characters and make them what they are. He punched Roy Keane, didn't he? In the dressing room when he was at Forest. He punched. He was like, Roy, lad, have you ever been punched in the stomach? And Roy was like, no. He's like, bang. Well, you have now. And it's just like every single player that played under him has got a story like that. Yeah. You know, the only person that called Teddy Sheridan a Medford. You refused to call him Teddy. You would call him uh, Edward. Ah, so I, I, I look like Teddy Sheridan. Well, I know you don't. Do. You don't really. <laughs> I, I do. Whoever's told you that has had far too many drugs. <laughs> but I think for for the Teddy Sheringham transfer, we, we we've spoken, we've waxed lyrical here about Brian Clough, and I think you know we're not the BBC, so don't have to be that balanced, but. The Teddy Sheringham transfer was sort of, he was mired in the, in the bung scandal with that. And I think, you know, that there was, was it Alan Sugar, the Tottenham manager, or the Tottenham chairman, sorry, who said, um, at the time he said, the agent said that Brian Clough loves a bung and that if you can bung him some money, then he'll make sure the thing happens. So it, his legacy has been a little bit tarnished. And the only reason he didn't get investigated was because of his ill health. 
for that transfer. So the FA were like, we'll, we'll cancel, we'll cancel the investigation because you're too ill to stand, stand trial effectively. Um, and then he retired two years after from management. And I think, you know, the, the end of, the, the end of the Brian Clough story is a really, really sad one. I think going out with, with alcoholism and, 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 you know, going out with, with what he went out with and, and, and retiring in 93 and just being that peripheral figure. It's a really sad story, the Brian Clough story, despite all of its successes, despite all the immense achievements that he had as a human. He was, as you say, Andy, he was deeply, deeply flawed. And it's, it's, it's a shame really because his sporting achievements were, were, were I mean, as a British manager, second to almost nobody, second to almost nobody. Great, great. Absolutely genius. I, I would say he is the greatest British manager because of the fact he did it with more than one club. Well, just that's what he went from Derby to Forest. They're, they're rivals, aren't they? So the pressure, you know, to go from Derby to to to, to your greatest rivals. It's, it's, it's basically a bit like Darrell Clark, I suppose, going from Rovers to City and then taking City. You know, all the pressure from all the Rovers fans going, "Oh, oh, oh you know, we want you to fail," and then going on and succeeding. You know, it's, it's, it's what's it's, amazing. It's what's amazing about the 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 Brian Clough and the the Don Revy era. Is that Derby and Leeds are miles apart from each other. They didn't have any rivalry beforehand. And that rivalry after Don Revy and Brian Clough has endured to this day. They cannot stand each other. You know, you, you hear those stories of Leeds going to the old baseball ground in the, in the 80s and 90s until Pride Park was built and the amount of damage they were caused and vice versa, Derby fans going there. You know, it is amazing the impact that those two people, Brian Clough, we're talking about now, has had on that, that area, certainly in, in, in Derbyshire. For, and obviously they're not in share for, for the last sort of 50 years. It's, it's unbelievable. Unbelievable story, that. Am I right in thinking that Derby and Forest play for the Brian Clough trophy think, yeah. every time yeah. they play, yeah? It's not every yeah, time. It's over the two games of a season. Yeah. You've got Brian no, Clough I mean, he's the motorway. What other manager does that? You don't have, you know, you don't have, you don't get that, do you? You don't get, you know, I can't really see Rovers and Warsaw playing for the Darrell Clark trophy, you know. I think it's, um, is it, is it a way or an A road that links Derby and Nottingham? And that's called, officially called Brian Clough Ray. And it's, yeah. it's named after Brian Clough. The impact he had on, yeah. you know, he died and he said, I remember I was watching the story of him when he was, it was his last ever interview, Sky Sports Retro on, on YouTube. They've got really, really good. They've got his last ever, do- um, interview that he gave to Martin Tyler, I think it was. Um, and he says, listen, I've had a great career. I'm gutted. I'm really sorry that I've been relegated. You know, thank you for your time, Martin. You've been amazing over the last 20 years to get to know. Um, you know, and, and Martin's like, how do you feel? And he said, how do I feel? I've managed the club that I love. I've won double European. You know, some might say I'm the best in the business. I say I am the best in the business. And I've gone out on a, you know, I am the best manager at what I do. And he's like, do you, will you manage another club? He's like, no, I, I couldn't manage another club. And he retired sort of like eight weeks later. And I just think that the, the, the man was a he had a, he had a spell over so many people. He was amazing, 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 amazing. And I'm gutted that I didn't get the chance, and Ollie, you didn't either, to to see him manage because he was a genius, an absolute genius. Well, if I can, I'll end this. I'll end this on on one quote which I absolutely love. And he was asked once by I don't know if it was Match of the Day or one of the. the, the yeah, one of the pundits. I said, um, uh, Mr. Clough, would you say you're the best manager? In the in in the country right now, and he said, and I said, young man, I wouldn't be as rude as to say that, but I'd certainly say I'm in the top one. It's quite a famous quote, that, isn't it? Yeah, brilliant. I'd also absolutely brilliant. Me to end it, I would say check out that Sky Sports retro interview. It is fascinating. It's, it is amazing. I would also I would look at any story told by any player that played on the Brian Clough or tried to be signed by Brian Clough. They're amazing. I think he's um, yeah, I think. It's a fascinating, fascinating character in, in the world of 
of, of English football. With, without doubt. Yeah. Cool, cool. That is the only clip in Bolt's Totem Bar in three and a half episodes now that hasn't been taken apart. I don't think you can. I don't no. think you can. He was a, he was a, he, he said, in that, in that Sky Sports Retro interview, he said, I've managed a team I love. I've won with a team I love. I've been the best in the business. I'm a good socialist. And I love my wife to bits. How can I not be happy? And he says that in floods of tears. And you think, you're, what a man. What a man. I'd what? say what's interesting actually is, you know, Obi mentioned, didn't he, last week that, um, you know, how good a manager Nigel Club is. Yeah. You and he clearly holds the same sort of, you know, he'll have a lot of the certain values and he did a lot and he managed Forrest and Derby as well, don't forget. And I, I think he did, he did a fantastic job at Burton. I mean, look where they are now. You know, he kept them in the championship for a long time. Last year he had them competitive in, in the one. Kept them in the championship for a long time. What? Just the two seasons. <laughs> two seasons. <laughs> they, they yeah. But they were expected to be a Wickham, weren't they? They were expected to be Wickham Wanderers. Well, they were. Is, you know, and they, well, they he kept them up for two one. seasons, you know. And then he kept them in the champion, in League One last season. Look at them now. They're, they're, they're a mess. Spot know? quiz. Burton went to the last, when they stayed up in the championship, Burton went to the last day. Who was the team that went releg- that got relegated as Burton won and this team lost on the last day when Burton went down? Go. Sunderland. Ollie? Not Sunderland. You're correct. It's not Sunderland. I mean, you've got a, you've got a 90, <laughs> 92 chance <laughs> of it. <laughs> Ro- Rotherham. No, it's Peterborough. It was the last time Peterborough got relegated out of the championship. Peterborough. Harry Fry, they got relegated at Charlton on the last day of the season. I don't know why I know that. I don't know why I know that. We're actually accepting your um, that answer without any knowledge. You could have just made that up on the spot. No, I listened to an interview. About to be Fox. fair, we take your we take your as memory, man. We take that as, as, yeah. as possible. <laughs> but, but the difference is, uh, amongst it, I am actually known as the memory man. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I've got him saved in my phone. Ollie, memory man downs <laughs> or downs. <laughs> right, are we ready for my, my clip then? Are we? Yep. Holes? Ready, Spider? Cool. So we'll move on to my final clip then. Um, and the clip that I brought to the, to the Totem Bar, um, for the second time round is the squash shots of the year from the year 2017, 2018. But it's the, it's the women's squash shots of the year from the year 2017, 2018. And if there's one sport I love playing more than football, it's squash. Um, I think it's a game that's so tactical and so fast. It's amazing to play and watch. Um, but for me, the, the compilation contains two shots from my favourite squash player of all time. Um, she's called Camille Serm. She's in there twice. Um, and I love her because in it, she's from France, which is quite a rare thing in, in, in squash, certainly given that it's a sort of the reserve of the Egyptians. Um, she's been in the top five of the world rankings since 2013. She's been in the top three since 2017. She's peaked at number two. She's never quite made it to number one. Her technical ability is absolutely ridiculous, and you can see that from every single shot in this in this um, in this winners compilation from shots of the year um, in 2017-18. From every single player that's in it, their technical ability and their 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 control and their ability to 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 select shots is absolutely absurd. I'll be in, I'll be keen to see because we've not discussed squash ever between the three of us, but it's probably my second favourite sport. So, what what were your thoughts, Ollie? So I do actually quite like playing squash. I played it. Quite a lot when I was younger, because it's also an outstanding sport for keeping fit. It's so fast, and obviously I was playing football at a semi-decent standard, and it was about 
it's I don't think there's many sports that, that are as good for staying fit for football as squash. It's fast paced movements. It it very good sport, very fun. It is really fun. And I was actually not too bad at it. What about you, Andy? Never played the game, never watched the game. Oh, really? So what did you make of this, then? Well, it was just somebody, people hitting the ball against the last wall. I mean, that is... If I'm honest, I'm really honest. I mean, it's probably the only racket sport I've not played. Because I played tennis a little bit, and I played badminton at quite a good level. Um, never, never played squash. I mean, my old man used to play squash on his lunch hour with a guy from work when I was younger. Never really got into it. Didn't really understand what was going on. Don't understand the rules. So it was just, it looked, basically, it looked like to me, I was just waiting for Philip Schofield to come out and go, here's your challenge inside the cube. <laughs> uh, and that was what it looked like to me. It was just two people whacking a ball against the wall. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's quite okay. clearly more to it than that, but I just don't understand the game. I, I, I apologise. Never watched it, never played it, don't understand it, don't know what's going on. I've, I've actually got quite a funny story about squash. So my dad used to play against his best friend on a Friday night when I was about, I don't know, 10, 11. And God knows why, I must have had no friends. I used to go along and watch. And occasionally I'd probably go on and have a, put, have a little go, but I was only about 10. And my dad used to play against this bloke who was absolutely rubbish. He used to beat him. Is it like first to 11 a lot of the games? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So my dad, he'd he beat him 11 nil most of the time. He was right-handed. So they'd been playing for like six months or something, and he'd beaten him 11 nil every time. He'd hardly ever, hardly ever won a point against him. So my dad turned up this one time, and he decided he was going to play left-handed. And this bloke, it's getting like 11-6, 11-7. So it's like getting quite close. And the bloke's like running around, like thinking he's like really improved, and he's going, "Oh, Steve, my dad's called Steve. Steve, Steve, I've really improved." And it, it, it took him about an hour to realise it was playing with the wrong hand. He's playing against Ronnie O'Sullivan, by Yeah. <laughs> was he playing with a cricket bat? <laughs> Absolutely. So, like, what I love about this video, I, I'm going to talk about Camille Sirm pretty much exclusively, actually, because I think she's she's just genius, and the fact she's not won a world title or been world number one is is scandalous, but. The shot selection for her first winner in that video is is absolutely ridiculous. So the ball, it, the, the the length of the court is about nine and a half metres. I think it's like 9.75 metres. The width of it is just over six metres. So the ball travels about 100 miles an hour at their at their level. Her ability to react, to select the shot, to not to anticipate the shot, anticipate the direction of the ball, to select the shot she wants to play, play the shot, and then win the shot off that. And she cuts a volley, so she's got a backhand volley, and she cuts it just above the fault line, and it dies. So you're playing a ball that's at 100 miles an hour, so the ability to... That ball will fuck off the wall, unless you can cut it right out of the, right out of the air, and cut right across it. And she cuts across it, and it's just millimetres above the fault line, and it dies on the floor like that. The skill involved in that is absolutely unbelievable. And the, what, what, what I think Ollie's right is the way it transpires or, or translates quite well into football is the, is the footwork. So she plays that shot and she cuts across the ball and she just settles. It certainly takes about a step, maybe a step and a half into the center of the court. And the player who's, who's, who's got to basically come behind them because that's where the ball's going to go in the right channel. So she's on the left channel, cuts across it and the ball's going to fly down the right channel. The way she steps back into the middle of the court across the right, because you're not allowed to block in squash but you are allowed to sort of stand where you are naturally finishing the shot and make it look quite natural. So effectively, you're out of block without being a prick. And so she's cut across it, and the way that it just dies on the floor next to you, 
it, it, a, it must be fucking annoying if you're the person playing against that, and B, the control and the technical ability to just cut it out and just cut it right into the bottom corner and for it to die. It is unbelievable how good, how good, how good Camille Sturm is. And she's not even the best in the world. I do think, potentially, once things get back to a bit more normality, we could have a totem bar squash special. We could have a tournament. Um, um, that'd be a good sport. Filming a podcast whilst playing squash. <laughs> I don't recommend people would have done that. It would probably be a world first. A world first on a Totem Bar podcast. At this point, I'm going to do a Luke. <laughs> not not impressed with not impressed with this clip, Monksy, or that suggestion? No, no, no. Or... I just got the, I just got the audacity of, of, of young Smith here, who turned around and said that Speedway is like watching people going around um, in a goldfish pool, and then brings a clip, which is literally two people in a goldfish pool, whacking a ball against it. No, I'm sorry. The thing about squash is it's you can play it anywhere, so you just need a, a basically nine by six, and you know squash. To be honest, the, squash, the world the world championships in squash are played in town centres in in the centre of Egypt. Like you don't get that in speedway, but the the shot selection and the ability to react and the ability to play the shots. Squash is it, a it's a really fun game. As I always say, it's really good for keeping fit. I played it to an all right standard. I played it to you know nothing more than really university level. But I, I mean, I used to play it six days a week. It is the the best sport. I, I prefer playing it to football. I fucking love playing squash, and the, the the speed of the of the movement of the ball, the shot selections, and I think British people. I know you're both see big English football fans or big English sports fans. It, the English are pretty good at, at squash. Like we we've got we, we tend to you know lay our lay our sports people on a, on a bit of a pedestal that they don't have to be on. The English are fucking good at squash. You've got yeah, Olivia. To be, fair, to be fair, we all seem to be quite good at, on the Olympics. You know, you see the headline things on the Olympics. I like I watch a lot of it, but we all seem to do quite well. We always get into, like the bronze medal match minimum sort of thing in there. Why am I thinking the Indians are pretty good at, at, at squash? So squash isn't an Olympic sport, so that's a good, that's a good start, good insight there. And secondly, <laughs> no, it's the Egyptians. The Egyptians are the best in the world. I think it's. What five, am I thinking of then? Four of the top kabaddi, maybe. Four of the top five are. Um, <laughs> Four of, the four of the top five in the women's are Egyptian, um, and then three of the other like five that make out the top ten are Egyptian or of Egyptian heritage. The others are French, which is Camille Serm, or you've got um, Olivia Blatchford, who also, I think she's eighth in the world and she's English, and she's amazing as well, actually. She's, she, she's well worth a watch. Um, for the men's sport, you've got Joel Macon who's in the top ten, and then in the last ten years... Nick Matthew and James Wilstrop were top one or, you know, either first in the world or third in the world for squash. So we're pretty good at it on these shores. We're, we're, we're really quite good at, at squash. So do, do you think that squash should become an Olympic sport, Luke? I think it's the opposite to cricket. Squash, squash is desperate to become an Olympic sport, but the last time it applied, it lost out to sumo wrestling. Um, we, we, I don't know what kind of squash that is. <laughs> <laughs> Monksy is here all week. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I do. Only if to increase the profile of the game. And because the game wants to become an Olympic sport, so many of the non-G8 nations are really, really, really good at squash. Egypt, for you know, for, for point and centre. You've also got Canada are fucking good at squash. Um, the, Britain always get the gold medal at the Olympics. Yeah, but the, uh, always the gold medal match. I got that from. I'm sure I saw something. Man, it must have been, it must have been like some sort of world championship on grandstand. Then I saw. 
the British men's have dominated have dominated world squash for the last ten years. It's it's sort of fallen off a bit now, and it's been replaced by by your Egyptians, as I say. But um, the Egyptians for, for the women's game have, have ran it for the last twenty years. They're unbelievable at it, and um, I think obviously the the conditions there dry. The ball is really really quick. You can play it in the town centres that everyone turns out to watch. To you know, just a, as you say, it's just a perspex cube in the in the, in the middle of town at night. Eh? Bit hot though, isn't it? Well, but that's brilliant. We at, at uni, we had this um, we had this squash court, and it, you could turn it up to forty degrees, but no, it's artificial heat. So there's no there's no conditioned air. There's no there's no moisture in the air, so you can just turn up it dry air, forty degrees. And we used to do that six days a week. And uh, Christ, I was fit back then. My God, look at the state of me now. And you consider me back at university. My cheekbones were out here. It was unbelievable how, how fit I was because I was playing that for two hours a day, six days a week on this dry, dry court, and it was um. Yeah, and that's why I think the Egyptians are best because they play in the conditions that that suit the sport the best because it's flat, it's dry, it's arid air, and and they play they play it at night even when it's like thirty, forty degrees in the air. And I think, yeah, I, as a sport and as as women's sport, I think we we spoke about women's cricket a few weeks ago and how technical the shot selection is in men's squash. The rallies tend to go on for much longer because the balls are at the back of the court all the time. Whereas I think you, you see here with the um with the women's shot selection. They are just cutting the ball away, and it is dying every time it hits the wall because of the way they take the spin off and take the pace off the ball. You have to play squash to understand how difficult that is. I think Ollie, you probably have some kind of um, insight. A little bit, yeah. It's there's a lot about squash that I don't understand. That's for sure. Monksy is um, head of the GB squash team, Olympic committee. (laughs) (laughs) I want to see. I want to see squash on a speedway bike. That'd be good. Or that would be good. You know, probably could play nicely. Do you know? Also, the me and Monks said we love the smell of a speedway bike. Put the speedway bikes in a squash court. Start revving them. That smell would be some else. Uh, but think of the, 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 the smell is the reaction between the fuel, That's true. And the but shell, we, it's the track. Yeah, but I was just about maybe we have, we'd have to get the squash court would have to become that sort of. It probably mess the ball up though, wouldn't it? Nah. Well, maybe the, the, you could have the um the, the perspex cube in the middle of the tr- in, uh, in the grass in the middle, and as they ride around, they got to hit the ball. You know, balls, yeah. I I I must admit this sport is in the very early stages of conception, it but is. I think Rob's going to work in all honesty. But there we go. But I think any any listener who hasn't played squash, it is and you can go in there any level of fitness and any level of hand eye coordination, and if you play it regularly. It is fun, firstly. Like, I think everyone, I mean, Ollie, maybe not Andy, because you've not played squash, but you've certainly played racket sports. It's a great sport to play. You can play, there's beginner balls and, the, you know, you don't have to warm them up so much, so you don't have to rub your foot over them to, to warm them up. The beginner balls are bouncy, you can bounce them in your hands quite easily, and it's quite easy, it's quite low effort. Uh, so, are we, are we back to your sex life again? Fuck's sake. But, I think genuinely, if you play, I, I cannot recommend playing squash, rec- like watching it, like watch these clips and just see how good they are, and see how, you know, if tennis is an Olympic sport, squash and badminton, squash needs to be. You know, it's got a place in the Olympics. And I realise we've called the Olympics the fucking summer fate of, of sports where all the shit sports go to play. But I didn't come out. But it is where it, it, it has a place, it does have a place. If fucking long jump, people jumping into a sandpit has a place, then people with actual skill and talent genuinely deserve a place at the Olympics. Touche. Is that it then? Are we done with squash? No one, no one's going to sit here and criticise it and slag me off picking it. We're, we're happy with that. I think Monksy's so frustrated with his clip 
that he's not even going to criticise it. Because I think he just knows it's just a lost cause. Indeed, indeed. It's, 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 it, I mean, I'd like to give it a go. I'd probably be okay at it because I've got quite good hand-eye coordination, but... I genuinely think, mate, um, you know, I think racquetball, something like that, which is the sort of the, the over-40s version of squash, where it's a little bit lower lower impact, if you could take that and then go into go into squash off the back of that, genuinely think you'd be really good at it, mate. I genuinely do. Yeah, no, I'd like to give it a guess. There'd be all man's to play. And as you, as you said, it's very good at keeping you fit. It's a very... I mean, I'm not going to argue with that, you know. And I, I, and I dare say, as you say, playing it is probably, it's probably good. Watching it... Mm. Oh, mate, oh, what I mean, what? I could watch it. Could it's literally like watching the cube on, on ITV, you know. Without a lot of knowledge about like the more technical side of it, I wouldn't say it's the best sport to watch. I don't know but, about that. I don't know. I think I'm, I'm saying that watching fishing not... to me, you know. I mean, why on earth are they televised fishing? Oh, what well, the fuck I'll, is going on there? I will bring on cockfish at some point. I love it, but I've I got an I- I've got an idea for one for a future guest. I've I probably have got a. Well, no, he is my friend from the Gas Angling Squad. Maybe we could uh, get him on. Yeah, that's a great idea. I'll get Dirty Barry on. He's a speedway rider. <laughs> Come on, Dirty Barry. Come on, the, get, get on the podcast. He's a good laugh. He's a good laugh. So, yeah. And he I... did actually, he did actually ride, he did actually ride, um, more grass track speedway, just more the, the low, yeah, the, the down to earth stuff, grass track. You know, as you get in, if you're good at grass track, and you then get on so that you get picked up by, by the, the big boys get onto the onto the grit, but last tracks quality. Right, so we've been running the podcast competition on Facebook and on Twitter. We've narrowed it down to the top six, which is two each. Um, one of the prizes will be the Twitter retweet competition, which we'll announce at the end of the podcast. And the other prize is Matty Dolan's signed pair of football match worn boots, um, which will be winging its way to the winner that we decide has come up with the best story. I'll start first. My story was sent to me by Simon Ovi, and he says the following. Good evening. Just thought I'd share my funny football story with you. I'm a lifelong Newport County fan, and I've followed them since a very early age. It's hard for the kids of today to comprehend that back in the day, we competed and regularly got the better of the likes of Swansea and Cardiff. If we rewind the clock to 1982-1983, when I was 13, we were due to play Cardiff on December the 27th at Ninian Park. I think Cardiff were top of the old... Third division and county were third. I nagged and nagged my father, who, although followed the fortunes of county, had long stopped actually going to games to take me to the game, as I was too young to go to myself. In the weeks and days leading up to the game, he had point blankly refused my quest to buy me a ticket for Christmas, and right up to the evening of the game, I'd long given up hope of going. Come the morning of the 27th of December, my father surprised me with my favourite Christmas present that year by waking me up early and to tell me that he was going to take me to the game in his car. It was a morning kickoff. On the way to the game in the car, we were loosely chatting about the game when he dropped the bombshell that we were not going behind the goal with the Newport County fans, as they were, in his words, complete idiots who just wanted to cause trouble, but instead we were going into the home end on the popular bank at Cardiff's Old Indian Park. Now, even as young at 13, I knew this probably wasn't a great idea as Newport County fans, but I realised this was the only way I was actually going to go to see the game, so I shut up. This was a big mistake. About 80 minutes in, we're 2-0 down, sandwiched on the back of a very partisan bank, um, the crowd being about 20,000. My father looked at me and said, come on, let's make our way home. As we inched our way towards the exits, in the space of five minutes, Neil Bailey and Neil Vaughan both scored, and bang, we were level at 2 all. 
The equaliser was met with my father punching the air in delight, but unfortunately, that was met with a few other punches flying the opposite direction. Literally a minute later, although it felt like a lifetime and a few black eyes later, Jeff Hemmerman lobbed the late, great Mark Kendall for about 20 yards and the bank erupted, so much so that it allowed my father and I to escape for our lives. Apart from a cop in a few cheap blows, one to the midriff and one below the belt, my long-lasting memory of that day was watching Mark Kendall swinging on the crossbar when we equalised to make it to all. They were fantastic times. I think, Simon, that is a that is a brilliant story. We've all been there. I think that is endemic of being a lower league fan. Thank you very, very much for sending that in. We'll let you know if we won, if you've won later on in the podcast. Andy, what's your story? Okay, well, I've actually got a Bristol Rovers fan. I'm not sure why they are wanting to win. Um, boots signed by a new player, but fair play, uh, none say. Um, so this is um, going back to 1984. Um, where, uh, this guy used to drink in the Black Castle in Brisbane. Um, about 15 or 20 of them, uh, drank there and then holidayed there, um, holiday. He says holidayed together. Uh, holidayed together, but they holidayed in the Black Castle. That'd be a quite a random thing to do, wouldn't it? Holiday in the Black Castle. They holidayed together. Uh, half of them were Rovers fans and half of them were City fans. Um, now, uh, City reached the JPT final against Bolton. I think it was actually called the Freight Rover back then. Um, and there were two places left on the bus on the Friday before the game. And he says, after a few beers, me and another gas mate said we'd fill the bus. We had a, dis- a decent day out, lots of piss taking, etc. Fast forward to the new season, and my mate shows up at the pub after City's first game, and there, right in the centre of the programme, was a photo of their fans at Wembley with me and my other gas mate front and centre. <laughs> <laughs> it was there all season and they will never let, never live it down. And that's from a guy called Mike. <laughs> well, <laughs> I actually, I think that's absolutely brilliant. You know, I mean, imagine that you go and watch, you know, a, a one-off game involving your nearest, dearest rivals. On the sly. On the sly. And your photo is taken and you're there whack bang in the middle of their program for the whole season. You're in the evil post and you are central to <laughs> the caption is Bristol City fans at Wembley and obviously they're two gas heads. Disgraceful yeah. really. Absolutely. But I mean if that was me, I would flip that over and say, Look at this, this is your your moment of glory. <laughs> and you've got two, two Rovers gas fans. heads. Two Rovers <laughs> fans there spoiling in it, you know. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah, fair play, boy. Great, great, great story. Great story. Ollie, what's your first story? My my first story was sent in by a lad called Ethan. His email reads, My dad and I was at Newport County versus Notts County, and I went to get him some food from the burger van. When I was walking back, I gave him the burger, and Joe Day kicked the burger, kicked, kicked the ball, I'm presuming, and the burger went all over his Newport County top. <laughs> I hope I win. Short, sweet. I've got a, I've got a similar story to that. We were at Barnet away in the, um, it must have been the National League when we were, we were playing them. It might have been League Two when they came up with us. And we, um, me, my dad and my mate called, um, I'll protect the, I'll protect the, uh, the innocent. We'll call him Jim. He came with us. And, um, we, we were at the, the, the burger van and I queued, I was first of the three of us. I went up and said, I just want a burger. So I had the burger, this back when I ate meat. I had the burger, bit of mustard and they came up to me and gave me two burgers. 
So I was like trying to get the, you know, you know that fucking wanky bit of like ketchupy pre-cum you get when you're trying to squeeze the, the, the ketchup but that watery crap comes out first so you get the ketchup afterwards. Just try shaking a bottle and it gets rid of that. Well, I tried that, but I, anyway, I got some ketchupy pre-cum. This got the guy behind the thing comes up to me and gives me two burgers, right? So I'm chatting, laughing, being, oh, I've got two burgers for free after I've moved on. And me and Ollie, oh, sorry, me, my dad, and uh, my mate called Jimmy have moved on. And um, we've all, I've got two burgers in my hand. They've all got one burger in their hand. And I'm laughing about how I've, I've nicked this burger. They're all pissing themselves, saying, oh, you're such a, you're such a legend, you know, a, a funny man for nicking a free burger. And some fucking gashead walks behind me, being, oh, it's a free burger. I'll have it. And he just takes a fucking burger out of my hand and starts eating the burger. Absolute snake. Absolute no, 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 no. snake. I, I actually quite like the fact that obviously the folks looked at you and thought that man needs two burgers. You know, one burger is not enough. He needs two to fill him up. Have, have, have him on the house, son. You know, you, you obviously need feeding. But Ollie was there that day. I remember him telling me and he said, the best thing about that day was I had a free burger. <laughs> Fantastic. Cheers for that, mate. Was it, wasn't MK Don's away on Boxing Day, was it, by any chance? But the highlight was a free burger. Stop it. <laughs> I'm just jealous you weren't there, Muncie. Um, no, indeed, indeed, indeed. I'm just gutted at the moment because I had it all planned out this season, all the away games I was going to, so it's all gone up that fucking guy was walking Bastard. You wouldn't have gone anyway, Muncie. No, no, no. I'm a free and single man now. I can do what I want. So we'll um we'll cover the final three stories um towards the end of the podcast and I'll also do the Twitter competition as well. Um but for now we'll move on to the fixer memory man. I'm gonna summon the fixer memory man with my little jingle. Ooh, I want the fixer memory. This is where we need Kev, yeah, this is where we need Kev. Yeah, there was a good jingle. It would be good if you didn't fucking speak over it, yeah. You're absolutely right. <laughs> Fuck's sake. So fixer memory man or Ollie fixer memory man downs. I've got a question for you. I'm ready. I'm always trying to catch you out, because I don't believe you are the fixer memory man. I think you're an imposter. However. Fraud. Yeah, fraud. The Stuart Pierce, you're a fraud, according to Brian Clough. Fixer memory man. Do you remember, on the 8th of March, 2014, Doncaster Rovers 2, Huddersfield Town 0? Yes. Oh, <laughs> he's done it again, hasn't he? He's so good at it, isn't he? He's too good. I mean, you just, you just, you just put it up there, and he's just smashed it out of the park. I knock like him up against the yeah. like Ben Stokes. He's just, he's it, scandalous. It really is. He is the fixer memory man. He's two from two. Fantastic. I don't know how he does it. I don't know how he does it. I think that's pretty much the, the. I think that sums it up. I don't know how he does it. We'll try and catch out the fixer memory man more next week alright so are we going to move on to the documentary choice Andy do you want to introduce what the it was your documentary this week do you want to introduce what the documentary was and what it was about yeah so I thought you know obviously we had two and a half hours of cricket last time out so I thought you know we need, we need there's something even longer than that can um, I just, can I just so add I... sorry sorry Monksy but um, it was only an hour and 34 You've managed to turn up with a documentary that was the best part of three hours long and contains seven different parts. <laughs> and four well, different languages. You know, <laughs> all right, I, I shall rephrase that. We had something that seemed like two and a half hours long of cricket. And so I thought, you know, what, what we what we really need is something even longer and even more in detail. And so, yeah, Diego 
in Mexico. It's a seven. I, I didn't realise it was. So <laughs> Apologise. It was a seven-part TV series on Netflix. Um, but I think you will both agree that it was it was it was three and a bit hours of absolute riveting, ingenious, superb television. Uh, yeah, I'm not going to criticise the documentary. It was very very good. I don't like Maradona as a person. So I'm trying to keep my personal feelings aside, and I will let Luke. Could you give us like a, just a general synopsis, Monty, about the sort yeah, of yeah, what, yeah, okay. what, so, what was it? I agree with you. I agree with you. Prior to this, my thoughts on Maradona very, very split. Obviously, 1986 World Cup was the first World Cup that I could remember as a kid. It was the first World Cup that I was old enough to actually watch every game near enough, or except it was in Mexico, so the time difference meant some of the later games I could watch. But I remember watching the um, the England-Argentina game, and I remember my old man jumping up and down, calling him a cheat, and many other things. I never heard my old man swear and saw that day. <laughs> um, and so that maybe tired my impression of Maradona as a person. In my opinion, I know, me and Luke have had many conversations around this, and we won't go into this now. Maradona's the greatest player of all time. He's, to me, he's slightly better than Messi, slightly better than Ronaldo. Blake's an absolute genius. Um, but he's a cheat, so, so some say, you know. Now, to me, anybody would get away with what he would got away with. And if that was an English player with the other end, we wouldn't be, we wouldn't be moved. But that, that aside, the documentary is about him taking over a second tier, uh, Mexican side called Dorados. Um, it, the city in which Dorados are based, is the cocaine capital of the world. Uh, it's where it's all made. Um, so automatically you can see alarm bells maybe ringing when he becomes a manager. Um, although in his, to be fair to him, he doesn't get involved with any of that. And he takes this side from literally bottom of the table into the playoffs. Um, and, and the documentary is about him, how he basically gets these blokes full of confidence to get the morale up. Um, and, and turns these bang average footballers into sort of world beaters suddenly, and they're beating everybody, and they lose in the in the in the playoff final, um, quite unfortunately. And Maradona gets a lot of stick. Um, he wants to fight the crowd, and it's 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 a great watch. And then he then talks about his health problems after his split with his wife and in hospital. But then he comes back and manages him for a second season, and does exactly the same thing. Takes some boys being off ill. They're losing and can't do nothing at their bottom of the table. He comes back, takes them into the playoffs, and yet again, they lose in the playoff final. Um, but, and he then leaves, leaves the club and moves on to retire, basically, from management. Um, but for me, he comes across as a completely genuine, nice bloke. You know, he gave a, he gave a guy a pay rise and got him in the first team because he found out he came from the slums. Um, you know, he just, to, to me, he just changed my opinion of Maradona as a person. What did you still, sorry, you know. What, what did, what did you think of that part, Muncie? You shouldn't give a bloke a pay rise because of his background. It wasn't that though. He, he, he gave him a pay rise because he broke into the first team. Look into the first team. Yeah. No, I recognize that. I'd question the authenticity of it. it. All these, all these type of docu-series, fly on the wall type series, I, do, I just question the authenticity of it. 
if you know the camera's there, you don't act normally. I think Maradona did, though, because he got sent off, what, twice? You know, during the game. And to me, it, it showed the difference of a man. You know, sitting here having a chat with you guys every week, you know, going to the pub, being in work, I'm a laugh, joke, nice guy, trying to get up with everybody. When I crossed that white line and I played football, as Luke probably realised when we played in that game, <laughs> Um, that charity game. I just turned into a complete, I gotta win. I gotta get everything, you know. I give it every bollock in. I'm shouting and falling and screaming. When I'm a manager, I'm going absolutely ape at the ref. I want to fight the other manager. I want to go mad. And then as the minute the final whistle goes, I just turn back into Monksy again, you know. And, and Maradona, he come across as this, you know, as this really nice guy. He's doing, he was doing stuff for charity. He was doing, you know, he even mentioned in a, in a, in a meal after the game that, you know, we, we got, we got to remember that we are, we are honored. We've got money. There's people that haven't got the money and we need to be doing all we can to help them. And yet the game starts and he wants to fight the fans. He wants to beat at the referee. He wants to fight the other manager and he just turns into the Maradona, I suppose, that we all know. Um, and it just showed the two sides. Uh, to me, I could relate to that because that's exactly how I go. When I'm playing football, I turn into this complete you know, oh, I want to win at all costs and I'll fight you and we'll, we'll, I'll kick you up in the air and do all that. And then after the game, the same person I wanted to kill 10 minutes earlier, I'm having a beer. That is the power of sport in general, though, isn't it? I think that sport has an impact on people that no other, nothing else in society makes people act the way sport does. I, I, I can't think of, think of one. Sport turns, pe- changes people's personalities. It, yeah, which well, I definitely. Think I mean, God, sorry, can't I? In, in particular football, well, that's what, that's probably a little bit, little bit of a bubble mentality because I don't play any other sports really apart from a bit of cricket. I, I completely understand what you're saying about when you go on the field, you, you become fundamentally a different person. You're mm. kicking people, you're shouting in their face, probably effing and blinding at them, which you wouldn't walk down the street and do that, would you? Or if you did, you'd be called an idiot. So, I agree. I think Monksy makes a really good point there. I think the very first clip of the episode shows Maradona squaring up to the coach of Juarez uh, and yelling at him, do you know how many games I've played and you've got a show ID to get into your own house? <laughs> yeah. I think that pretty much sums up where he was at mentally when he was managing the team. And it, for me, it, that, that line there really is, it, it really makes it a wonder how so many people over here struggle to warm to it. And I think it's genius putting that as the first line of documentary and showing him as the first because that is exactly it is confirmation bias that everyone who watches this documentary oh that's the Maradona we know that's the Maradona we hate he's a prick he really is a nasty nasty piece of work and then the documentary sort of unfolds over the next sort of 10, 15, 20 years like um, episodes or sorry not episodes um, minutes etc for the first episode and, and it really and three and a half hours yeah, it, it wasn't that long <laughs> but it was one of those that you know, the very first episode, the very first clip of the very first episode is him screaming at this, this manager. And then, but over here, I think if I was to juxtapose that, you know, he'd get fucking sorted for that over here. He'd get absolutely battered for it. I think the only thing that, that sort of really riled people up that, that kind of way that I could think of in the last sort of three or four years was Pearson, who, um, he got absolutely slaughtered for calling a, a, a journalist an ostrich. I think that is the only thing. This guy's saying you need ID to get into your own house. Like, even your family don't recognize you. And we're over here saying, Oh, you can't, Pearson can't call people an ostrich. Like, the difference, the, the difference in, in Spanish football fans and the way that Spanish or Hispanic, um, football fans and Hispanic football people engage and, and consume their football, that wasn't a big deal. People saying, well, he's, he's only having a go at the manager. He's only saying this. And he, at the end of the, at the end of the day, he's fine. 
this guy's he's taking piss out of this guy's life. Yeah. That, is, that is the thing I love about this podcast. We've started off talking about Maradona in Mexico, and we've managed to talk about Nigel Pearson calling people ostrich within within five minutes. Mike, do you have a subsequent question? If you were to slag off a football journalist who's having a go at you, what animal would you call them, Ollie? <laughs> it's not very often I'm lost for words. Can you come back to me? <laughs> Andy, what would you Dung go? beetle. You are a dung beetle, yeah, journalist. Because all you do is roll shit around and make it bigger and bigger. Yeah, push bullshit around the room like dung beetles. What are you guys? Yeah. So, Muggsy's, I was just about to say a pig because they're rolling, rolling shit. But yeah. Is there any more entitled a species in the human race than a fucking football journalist? They're all so precious about what it is they do and what it is they say. And, and oh, the I, role know, Henry, I quite like Henry Winsor. He's quite a good journalist. Yeah, like, definitely. Henry Winsor, very good sports yeah. journalist. Quite agree. But if you turn around and said, Henry, actually, your role's not that important. You might have a million followers on Twitter and you might be the daily football writer for the Telegraph. But ultimately, you don't really control or have any kind of impact on the game of football. What would he say to that? He'd go mad. And I think Maradona turned oh. up being like, you need idea to get into your own house, let alone you've got a million followers on Twitter. I think it is fucking brilliant the way the documentary put together and the very first episode of the the documentary says that and then it moves on to they juxtapose Maradona as a player and they show that uh, one of the best goals I'd never seen this goal before one of the best goals I've ever seen was Maradona when he skins four people against Chile and he's on the edge of the box and he just dinks it over and around the goalkeeper and it just lands in the bottom corner if any other player did that now that's one of the, we're, we're talking about that goal for years and that is just one of a reel of Maradona stuff what a footballer so what that documentary does is it, it juxtaposes how good a footballer he was and just a genius as a, as a player he was versus the shite that he's gone into to play that and, and the level that he's at now. It is, they're going in there and, and the goalkeeper's just dropping the ball or the goalkeeper's like stepping over the ball and, and then the striker's running around and scoring and this is the team that he's taken over. It's the equivalent of, you know, he's gone in there in the drug capital of the world, the cocaine trafficking capital of the world to go in there and, and try and get this team to a second-rate Mexican team to, to to the Premier League. It is the equivalent of Messi taking over Millwall and trying to get them to the top level of English football. It, it, it's, it's exactly the same. A shit team full of drugs, funded by drugs, druggy druggy fans. You know everything. Everything that stinks about Millwall is drugs. And you know in Bermondsey, etc. It's, it's a big druggy-using area. You've got the best player of his generation, the best player of that century, coming in and being like and. A recovering drug addict, lest we forget, coming in and saying, "Actually, do you know what? I'm gonna, I'm gonna take this to to to, to be the second best team in this division, and uh, and almost take you out twice." It's amazing. I, I thought it was an absolutely wonderful documentary. A wonder- I tell you the thing. They say the line I liked was when someone said to him, um, you know, "Do you have any regrets in life?" And he turned around and said, "Yeah, I do regret, you know, my drug taking and that because I then wonder what kind of player I would have been like." And you're just thinking, "Hang on." You know, in, in the eyes of many, many people, you were the greatest player ever. And you just said the whole time you were off your head on drugs while you were playing. I mean, it's just, it's just hell. Oh, I get that as well. I put that line out. And I think for two reasons. Firstly, I think, you know, you won a World Cup on your own. You did, you scored ridiculous amounts of goals. You won, you, you turned Napoli from a village team into one of the biggest teams in Italy overnight. Yeah. You, you did all right, Diego, son. You know, some people. <laughs> yeah. Some people regard you as the best player of all time. Nearly everybody regards you as the best player of the 20th century. So for a hundred years, you were the best player. Like you were that good. Like I think you did all right, mate. And the one it reminded me of was, um, you know, Brazilian Ronaldo, Ronaldo Lima. 
So Ronaldo Lima, um, he broke the world transfer record as a 21-year-old. He did the same as a 24-year-old. He played for Inter Milan, AC Milan, Real Madrid and Barcelona. He won the World Cup. He reached two World Cup finals. And Dunga, who was in that 98 team and then ended up becoming the, the Brazil manager. I think, I think he might still be the Brazil manager. His quote about Ronaldo Lima is, imagine how good he could have been if he tried. Which is, <laughs> Ronaldo Lima is probably the best number nine of all time. I, I, I'd be struggling to put anyone ahead of him as an out-and-out striker. Ronaldo <laughs> Maradona said, how good would I have been if I wasn't on the drugs? Ronaldo said, someone said about Ronaldo, imagine if he'd tried. How good could he have been if he bothered? It's unbelievable, that. I've got some more on the Ronaldo. Ollie, what did you say? i tell you what Ronaldo does try out. Eat him. Eat him. <laughs> Such a shame. By the, way, by the way, he's another player I would put ahead of Harry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fat Ronaldo, in inverted commas, as they said, he gets called nowadays because of Cristiano Ronaldo. On his day, Ronaldo was un- unplayable and a much better player than Ronaldo. So there's a stories, there's a couple of stories about him at PSV, right? So Ronaldo at PSV, so he came from Brazil and his first club in Europe was Eindhoven. And he'd turn up to training and he'd leave after 20 minutes. And the coach would be like, mate, Ronaldo, where are you going? He's like, I've learned it now, I'm done. So he'd learn in 20 minutes, you know, which presumably included a warm-up and a warm-down, what it took some players two hours to learn. Can you imagine how good Ronaldo would have been if he'd have stayed and used that extra one hour and 40 minutes? Other players, it is, it doesn't bear thinking about how good Ronaldo was and how good a player he was if he, if he could be bothered. And it's the same with Maradona and the drugs. There's a very famous story about Ronaldo, um, in, oh, I'm trying to think now. The France World Cup was that nineteen ninety eight. Yeah. Um, apparently, he was injured for the final. He had a fit. Um, he had a fit for the final. Yeah, and the team sheet went in, and Ronaldo wasn't on the team sheet because he was deemed not fit enough to play. And the Brazilian FA sent a message to the changing room, basically saying, "If you don't play him, you're, you're sacked. Win or win or lose." You're going to be sacked. So stick him on a team sheet, and they had to change the team sheet and put him in the team. You know, because that's how the rest of Brazil viewed him as a player. He was basically their talisman. Ronaldo was probably the best player in that tournament, like on by some some streets. So I can I can kind of understand, you know, the the, the clamour to play him, but it wasn't for the right reason, was it? It was it was for money. It wasn't for you know got got a good chance of winning and. Let's be honest, it's probably not, not too bad a backup in the Brazil squad to him. Well, they had Albert Romario. Like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> not, not too bad at all. <laughs> so this documentary, it also showed my favourite clip of Maradona, which is the, the warm-up um, in the European Cup versus Bayern yes. Munich. Where he's doing the kick-ups. He's juggling the ball to life is life. And you've got the uh, the Napoli background, the Napoli PA, the, the public announcer in the background. Na, 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 na. And he, you've got Maradona juggling, juggling the ball, you know, be that on the knee. Is that when he's led down? No, he's, he's stood up and he's just juggling the ball. So he's, he'll volley it up and he'll just, just trap it on his foot or he'll do some knees and keepy uppies. Um, even though it's a warm up, you can see how good a footballer he was during that, during that warm up alone. So yeah, ridiculous, ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, for me, he doesn't get the press that he deserves over here because of that hand of God goal. You know, I mean, that second goal he scored in that game. Where he's literally ran from his own hat. And, you know, against probably what was the best back four in world football. So, 
you know, Kenny Sansom, Terry Butcher, Peter Sherwin in goal, who was probably the best keeper in the world, Terry Butcher, one of the best centre-halves in the world, Kenny Sansom, best left-back in the world, or well, you had Terry Fenwick in there as well, not, not necessarily the greatest player in the world, but to, to run literally from, you know, five, ten yards inside your own hat and beat those sort of players and just stick it in the bottom corner. I mean, even the English, you know, the English commentator to man goes, well, you've got to say that's magnificent, you know. And, and it was, you know. The only thing I'd say is, about on the halfway line, he goes past Ray Wilkins in midfield. He's got to take him out. Yeah, yeah. If he yeah. takes him out there, it's, that never happens. And in the modern game, you'd absolutely get taken out. Yeah. Just, and that's, that, that's for me, yeah, you know, is, is why again, you can't really compare eras, yeah. Eras. As you say, he would have been taken out. You take the yellow and great, you know. But again, some of the tackles, when you're looking at that footage of Maradona, there's people coming in thigh height on him and they just bounce off of him. You know, nowadays, if he went like that on, on Messi, he'd be rolling around on the floor and it'd be a red card and, it, you know, yeah, as I you actually, say, nowadays, you get taken out, you don't get the chance. Yeah. I actually disagree with that. I think if you pick most footballers, but what I don't think you can criticise Ronaldo and Messi for is A, failing injury, and B, getting injured despite the challenges that are going on. I think the longevity and the amount of games, you never hear Messi or Ronaldo going out for, for thigh strains or for, for ACLs. I don't agree. And I think the best players ever have always had that. But do you know what? You can knock me down, but I will, I will get up and I will carry on playing. And I think Maradona, I think Messi has that. I think a lot of the South Americans have that, all the Uruguayan players. So I... I agree that there's a difference between Ronaldo and Messi in the areas that they play, but I don't agree that because of the challenges they face. Because you only have to watch Messi and he gets fouled 20 times a game. Same with Ronaldo. You only have to watch him and they get chopped out all the time. All right, they might make it the most of the, the, the piddly ones, but the ones that are properly painful, you know, the knee clashes or the ones that might send other players off with an injury, they'll both stay on. Very, very rarely you'll see either of them substituted. Very, very rarely. Oh, fair point. Fair point. Fair point. So that story about um the the warm up between Napoli and Bayern Munich, I've got a really I, I was I was researching this. So um Erlen Jonsson, who played for Bayern Munich, you know, Bayern Munich were European champions at the time. So that they just finished a shuttle run and the Bayern players but the Bayern players were, were recovering from the shuttle runs that they'd just done. And um they sort of started scouting and watching the Napoli warm up, Napoli team warm up, and they were looking at them thinking, Jesus <clears throat> They were watching them do like the, the equivalent of the rondo. Obviously, it wasn't the rondo back then, but it was ball keeping and it was passing exercise, etc. And then life as life starts, and you hear the, the Napoli guy at the background going, na, 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 and the crowd go up, and then know what's coming. And then Maradona starts his juggling skills, starts playing with the football, and the Bayern Munich team, who were champions, some of them were champions of the world at the time, some of them were about to be world champions in the next World Cup, because I think this is 1988, this clip happened, it might be 1989. Um, so that, you know, the West Germans go on and win Italia 90. These German players are standing there watching, watching Maradona. And if, apparently, if the camera pans to the Bayern team at the time, they'd all stop what they were doing. They'd stop the warm up. This is a fucking European Cup game. They'd stop the warm up and they were all watching Maradona do keepy uppies. So this is a team that were champions of Europe. Some of them were champions of the world. A lot of them were about to be champions of the world. And they're watching one guy from Argentina do keepy uppies. I- it, 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 for me, it just doesn't it, it doesn't say enough about how good a footballer Maradona was. And this documentary doesn't really go into his footballing career; it goes into his managerial career, which is uh, you know amazing, you know, really really interesting. But as a player, I mean, oh, a, a genius. And if you're a player and you're coming in, you're the second tier of Mexican football, and you've got arguably the best player of all time coming in to manage you. You're gonna be you know you're gonna be on your gay game, your, your gay game, your A game all the time. 
And you're gonna be you're gonna be motivated, aren't you? Because you're gonna want to impress the guy who is who is the guy in your eyes. I think. Yeah, no, I recommend anybody, anybody to any interest in football, watch it. I mean, it's it's fantastic. I thought it was absolutely brilliant. I could I could stop watching it. I just watched one episode after the other, after the after the other, to oh. see what was happening. You know, <laughs> I think he's one of those people that in this country it's really really difficult to warm to him because of because of the the, the way that the press have portrayed him. And obviously, I think the difficulty is like the images from the Brazil World Cup in 2014. When he's carried out of the um the press box with a suspected heart attack, and then the the, the camera pans to him after I think it's the Columbia game, and the, um the sort of what a fight everybody, isn't it? But it's not that the, the the glass box outside the director's box is just covered in cocaine. You think that's probably his legacy now? And despite this documentary, despite how good a footballer he was, I don't think you can say Diego Maradona without thinking drug addict and without thinking he was run out of Napoli by the Napoleon or the Napoli's mafia because of you know drug related. You know, crimes that he, he's alleged to commit. And I think that's his legacy. But I think you actually see the way that he was with his players and you see the way that he manages players. I, I really, really warm to him. I really, really warm to I him. I agree. I saw a completely different side of him. You know, as you say, I just seen him as this, you know, I go back to um, USA 94 when he scored that goal in his last World Cup and just ran to the camera with his eyes were, and you could see he was clearly on something. You know, even in that goal celebration. And that's what you see. You see this cheap, Drug taker, you know, and that's what you think of him, as you say, because the press portray him in that way. And quite possibly fairly so. Um, but in this uh, documentary, you see the other side of him, you sort of see that, that side of, he recognised that he was brought up in a, in a poor family and what he had to do to make it as a footballer. And then, you know, the players saw, you know, as they said themselves, they seen him as a father figure, you know, and, it's man management. The man management in the documentary, the way that he had a spell over those players in that dressing room. And he took them from bottom of the league. I don't want to give any spoilers, although we've already told you what happens, but he took them from bottom of the league. And the run they went on, and you know, it's professional football in front of the crowds in Mexico are ridiculous. The numbers yeah. they get are unbelievable. And Certainly when it was on championship, isn't it? Probably more. Probably yeah. more. The population is massive in Mexico. It's 250 million. So they probably get way more players. And their second division is, you know, the standard's not great. I mean, I remember texting you saying, like, the standard is absolutely honking. And he's turned this this team of shit players around, and he's turned them into... I mean, if, if he'd have been there from the start, they probably would have won a title. I mean, they were that good. And, um, yeah, the man management and the spell he had under him, and the spell he still has over that club, is yeah, just shows out, out what, what a man he was and, and, and how much they revered him. And what a difference he made to the town. Which, you know, we, we yeah. talked about to the very first documentary we covered was the battered bass as a baseball and the, the impact it had, um, on Portland as a, as a baseball team. For me, that is pretty similar. You come in, you've got the drug capital of the world. You've got a recovering drug addict who happened to be the best player of the 20th century coming in and he turns his team around to a team that no one's going to watch. They were bottom of the league and they turn around and making playoff contenders for, for two seasons in a row. It, 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 it stank of battered bass as a baseball. And he pulled together a bunch of shit players, and he and the spell he had over them made them made them fucking good players and a fucking good. See, he didn't sign anybody, did he? He just turned what he had there into 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 players. You know, and he, and he, he did. He had play, his own players for the second season when he was in hospital. Yeah, yeah. Second season he did something. but the first season he didn't sign anybody. He was there with these players, and he just said, you know, they they've got some ability. You know, the guy at Pub Vincini, you know. Looking at him, I'd have him at Rovers. He was, you know, and he said he was quick, he was powerful, he was strong, he was good in the air. 
You know, and he suddenly went from not scoring to that he couldn't stop scoring. Just because Maradona said, I believe in you, go and play football. You know? The keeper went from a Swiss cheese with holes in the middle to <laughs> an unbelievable <laughs> goalkeeper, didn't he? Yeah, he, he, he made the keeper captain. Duarte, suddenly, Duarte is the yeah. Yeah. yeah, and again he was saving everything. I think that in the well, he made a couple of mistakes for the, a couple of the goals, but some of the saves he was pulling off was unbelievable. You yeah. know, amazing, amazing. What was your thing, Ollie? I just can't take to Maradona. My main, my, my, main, my main problem with him is not that what happened with the hand of God. It's that he showed no remorse for it. He just he doesn't care. He laughs about it. So do you like Thierry Henry? No, not really. Because that, that was that was outright that, that was outright cheating. That was outright cheating. And as, no, I don't like him. Sense but... you've spoken the whole time on the Totem Bar, Ollie. Go on, carry on. Why don't you like Why don't you like Thierry Henry? Well, at all, I'll sp- I'll put that question back at you. Why don't you like him? I do. I do. I I I don't mind anybody, any professor sport, sports person who wins at all costs. I don't mind that. I agree. But, no, actually, so my point is, not that I, what he did, Maradona, was a little bit different to Thierry Henry, to be fair, because he literally jumped up in the air and punched it in with his hand. I actually probably think that Thierry Henry's just flicked it with his hand, but it's the fact there was no remorse after it, and he seems to revel in the fact that he cheated. Right, Gary Lineker against um, Cameroon. That's not, it's not the same. Blatant dive with a pedal. It's not. It's not the same as jumping in the game in the quarterfinals. Really dying. It's really it's no different, is it? It's cheating. Of course, it is. But because it's done against England, because when it's done for England, we're okay with it. No, 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 no. I'm not. I'm not saying it was good at all. And I, I don't condone it. But Mar- Maradona has. Gary Lineker sort of just brushes it off. Doesn't talk about it. Maradona openly brags about what is the the, the famous quote that. If he was to do it again, he'd punch it in with the other hand instead. He's <laughs> just, just an idiot. Yeah, but that's a different. It's a, it's a different way of life down there. That, is, as Luke said, down there, it's, it's, it's not seen as cheating. It's seen as getting away with it. I bet I bend in the rules, you know. And it's just, as in, on as a, in fouling somebody and, and not being called up by the referee. You don't surround it or giving away. A, let's say, for example, someone goes in for a corner to tackle, and it goes out for a corner, and the referee gives a goal kick. Defender don't turn around and go, oh, ref, sorry, it came off me last, it should have been a corner. That is a I'm not even you necessarily know? saying that Maradona should have said to the referee, I punched it in the net, because I don't think he should have. But it's fact, he's openly just bragged about it and joked about it. For me, like, and Andy makes quite a good point there, is that we, the first thing I picked up on was the fact that he said to his, the, the opposing manager, you need ID to get into your house, your own house. It's, the, the, the Spanish language and the way that, the, or Hispanic certainly, the way that South Americans are and the way that South Americans um, are sort of not indoctrinated, but the way they're brought up, it is win at all costs. And it's kind of if Andy said it earlier, you cross that white line, it's war. You know, it is not. It's not a case of oh, we might win, we might play a nice, good, friendly game. It's a case of we will get away with absolutely everything we can. You, it, it's the same with every single South American side. You only have to look back at um, Uruguay with. Um, it, it, against Ghana and it was at the 2010 World Cup in the Suarez, quarter final yeah. and Suarez just tipped it over the bar and he's celebrating the penalty being saved there are so many examples so, Uruguay have a word for it I think it might be Compacha something like that which is win ugly and it is and all of the South American sides even the great Brazil sides the Brazil sides that has played beautiful football that ended up in 
you know, that right back scoring one of the best goals ever scored by the outside. Was it Garincha who scored that unbelievable goal and he, he swazzed it to the, to the bottom left hand corner? But they all played horrible bats of football. And Maradona's just a product of that. I really, really want Maradona. I really, yeah. really want to in this. We don't in this country completely slate Nathan Mateus when he basically rugby tackled. Was it Ian Wright that he was clean for one goal? Which cost us a place in the World Cup. You know, he should have been sent off. He wasn't. You know, and that cost, we don't turn around and go, that's, that's cheating. He had no intention of going for the ball. All he did was literally, he, he did rugby tackle him. The referee shows him, and yeah, they've got the famous it, say it from Graham Taylor, landsman, landsman, your mates just cost me my job. Do I not like that? You know, what's the difference? Cracking impression, Max. I quite agree. Yeah. I agree. I, I don't necessarily agree, agree with the, um, dubious analogy you just made, but with that one, I, I, I genuinely do. I think, I think you're right. I think if we just try and draw a line on this, this documentary in a second, for me, the, I thought this documentary actually was tinged with a lot of sadness. I think you've got you've got a genius there. I think you've got a genuine a genuine football visionary. I think as a manager, if he didn't have the the, the drug problems he had, if he didn't have the the social network that he had, if he had the same one as say Pep Guardiola has now with with the Barcelona backroom, who followed him around from club to club, if he'd have had that backroom, we're talking about Diego Maradona as, in the same breath as a manager as 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 Guardiola. I think he's as a man manager. Tactically, he was unbelievable. You know, making the right substitutions over over the video, over the walkie-talkie during a one match to make sure that they and they they go on to win that because the right player was substituted at the same time, but he'd already been suspended, so he was in the, he was in the stands. I think as a as a visionary, but I think for me, like he he, he lamented in one of the episodes. I think it might have been episode five. How about he was he was leached upon by hangers-on about how he didn't have many true friends and that during his, his struggles, this is probably the most famous guy in the world for 20 years um, at some point during the 20th century, and that during his struggles, he was completely on his own. During his drug addicts, he was on his own in his own head. During his, dur- during his depression, which wasn't depression at the time, um, you know, he wasn't diagnosed as depression at the time, he was on his own in his own head. And it reminded me of Barry Hearn, actually, who said that a boxer, they need three people to win, they need the trainer, they need a manager, and they need themselves. And anything else is too much. Anything else, they lose themselves to committee. And it's at Maradona 58 years, which is how old he was at that Dorados to, to realize that. And I think that's such a, it's such a shame because he was a wonderful player. The players who played under him loved him, but ultimately it's a life that I think will be looked upon with sadness, a tinge of sadness, because I think he's been taken advantage of by the South American press, certainly by the Argentinians. And, and, and by people who, who, who should have known better because he, he's, he's a drug addict and he should have been, he should have been treated better than, than, than he has been by, by the press around the world. And that for me was, was what I took away from that documentary. Good summary. Good summary. And by the way, so it wasn't Pippen Lutz, it was Ronald Coon. What, what was wrong? Yeah. That, that fouled Ian Wright. Okay, Doug. Yeah, great, great summary. Great summary. I, I, I totally agree. So two things more from that document. In a little bit of a fun note. Firstly, in one of those document, in one of those episodes, there's a thirty-hour round trip for an away day <laughs> on, on dust tracks and mountainous terrain. We, and there was fans making that trip. Oh, there was a busload of them, and we wind about Doncaster away on the M5. They're going on mountains and dust roads with truck dealers and bandits. And they got 30 hours of that round trip. I thought that was amazing. I thought their fans, South American fans, I think we, we, we covered Irish and Welsh fans last week. South American fans will be on them sometime because they are 
something else. And I think this documentary showed how mental that 30 hour round trip. That is unbelievable. No, I do agree. South American fans, they, they, uh, they prove themselves at World Cups time and time again, wouldn't they? Was it Colombia that England played in the last World Cup? Yeah. And yeah. there's not many occasions that the England fans are outnumbered at a World Cup, but the Colombian fans that, that evening were something else to be done. It puts Carlisle away in perspective, doesn't it? It does, mate. You're right. You know, I said we went about Doncaster on the M5. And these guys are travelling, you know, drug bandits, dusty roads, mountains, you know, single track terrains for 30 hours. You know, fair play to it. And they lost, you know, spoiler alert, they lost the game that they went to that was 15 hours away. Fair play to them. Fair play to them. And long, then it... long, way, long way for nothing comes to mind. <laughs> I wonder whether they turn around and demanded the fact that the club gives them their, their um, trip and ticket money back. I mean, they've got more of a point. I hate that argument. <laughs> yeah. like, oh, you need a refund. But when you've travelled 30 hours of your life and you're spending, you know, 40% of your wages on fucking match tickets, you might have a, you might have a point, to be fair, on that one. And then definitely. finally, go on. No, definitely, I was just confirming what you said. Uh, and finally, it wouldn't be coverage of Hispanic football without mentioning the customary commentator, Go de Dorados. Why haven't we got commentators like that? So I want you, you know, one, you know, Andy versus Ollie. This isn't the quiz this week, but Andy versus Ollie. I want you both to have a go at the goal to Dorados and see who is best. So who wants to go first? Go on, Mike. You can go first. Three, three, two, one. Goal! A great effort. Right, Ollie, you ready? Three, two, one. Goal, 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 goal! Dorados! <laughs> he freestyled. I love that. That was class. <laughs> so good. Right. Where, where have we got commentators to do that? I just want to see John Motson doing that, you know. Yeah, imagine that. <laughs> All right, cool. So, uh, Ollie, do you want to start with your um, with your next story then? Yep, definitely. So, this my second story was sent to me by Stephen Farley, and his email began: "We, Newport County, were away to Welling United. I believe it was the two thousand and eight nine season. We won two one. During the first half, we gave their keeper a fair bit of stick, and he gave some back." And it was all good fun. One of the county fans decided to pinch the keeper's water bottle. Into the second half, this county fan still has the keeper's water bottle, and we've moved ends as you can in non-league. And at, and at one end, at Welling United, it's raised behind the goal. The match was one all when county got a free kick at the edge of the box. As the free kick is about to be taken, the lid has come off the water bottle. County player starts to run up for the free kick. The water bottle from the keeper from the keeper has got him right on the back of the head. He's turned round as the free kick free kick is struck straight into the net. Referee allowed the goal and we got the win. I'm sure there's some footage somewhere. Hope this makes you guys laugh up the county and that's from Stephen Farley. Good story. That's that a, a good story. Great that story. Is, that is something else. 
how indicative we were in non-league for obviously a year and, and fucking hope we never go there again although it was good fun we battered everyone every week how non-league is that story I absolutely love it Alexa <laughs> moving moving from one end to the other I used to do that when I thought let's go and watch Mangotsville I, I did that. I did that yesterday when I went out to Tamworth. I went to Tamworth against Banbury United, and I stood at one half, at one end the first half, and went down the other end for the second half. It's good fun. It breaks yeah. games. No, it's, well, yeah, I know. And it, to the point where I've, I've been to games. You know, well, as you know, I've, I've officiated a game at that level. Yeah, you know, they put all the flags up, and then at half time they take all the flags down and take them at the other end and put and put them back up again. It's brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. No, you cannot. It's epitomizes, you know, proper football for me. Yeah, pure like, football. Like, I always call it proper football because it is proper football. You know, not none of this, you know, Nambi Pongi stuff where you've got to, you know, you can't sit in you know, certain places. You just walk around the ground. There's no trouble. Everyone has a laugh, has a crack. You know, you watch a team play and then you go in a bar and have a few beers. Brilliant. Yeah, definitely. Couldn't the sun normally football up any better than that, Muncie Tupper? Yeah, love it. Well, I think I've got the next one. Um, which is a bit long, but it's, it, it's worth listening to. And thank you very much to Sean, who sent this in, who's a, a I'm assuming, a Newport County fan. Well, it doesn't actually say that, because he's actually a, a trip away with Wells. So he says, I went with Wells away to Croatia. Uh, this, apologies for the pronunciation here. Stadion Osijek is a small stadium with Welsh fans only getting an allocation of 1,100 people. Well, I've got a few away points on my account, I didn't have enough to get access to tickets. But one of my mates who was travelling did, and I was able to use his tickets. Only one slight problem, the names of Queensland's tickets. One of the three of us travelling, two of us, sorry, out of the three of us travelling, two of us had this predicament. A four-hour trip from Zagreb to the stadium we arrived at a bar around 10am for a 3pm kickoff. There our hearts sank as we saw on social media that the stewards would be checking all the way fans had ID that matched the name of the ticket. The kickoff an hour away, I had an idea to message the person whose ticket the name was in and ask for a photo of his password. Although we didn't look alike, it was worth a shot. In the bar, we were talking to Croatian fans who assured us there was no chance the stewards would check the tickets. Oh, how wrong they were. We get to the ground and they ask my mate for his ID, which he couldn't provide. They took the ticket off him uh, and pocketed it. So I gave my plan a shot and was greeted with the welcome of Mr. Murphy, which was his mate's surname. Much to his shock, he was allowed in, but his mate wasn't. Kickoff arrived and him and his mate, whose ticket was in his own name, found a spot to stand with his other mate still outside. After 10 minutes, he debated going to the pub, but all of a sudden they let 20 or so Welsh fans in, who persisted to the point without entry. They were greeted, um, they greeted each forward with a big hug until he was allowed in and struggled. Yeah, that's right. Until he was allowed in, I struggled to enjoy being there, and it didn't feel right, him not being in. Uh, they lost the game, but for him and Tom, it felt like they shouldn't have been there in the first place. Four days later, they repeated the same trick in Hungary, although this time his mate had got a screenshot of the passport and so was allowed in. Um, yeah, so, a, a, a very good story there, and one that I can actually um, sort of uh, sort of, uh, sort of accommodate. I'm not quite I, I can appreciate. Relate to. 
relate to. That's the word. Tattoo. Yeah. Um, because as I said, I've been to a couple of England away games. Um, one of which, um, was in Albania where they did a similar sort of thing. Although I would say the, um, <laughs> the, the security wasn't quite that stringent. They, they had names on the tickets. And as long as you could actually say the name on the ticket, they let you in. <laughs> so not quite to the forms of showing ID, but I, I know it does go on. So, um, yeah, thanks for Sean for that. So I know a good story there. I think Luke has got one more. Yeah, I absolutely do. I am also just trying to load up the random winner of the Twitter podcast or the Twitter competition. Um, so I will now fine. So the next story is for my most recent birthday. I was 24 in January. I assembled a group of mates to go to Newport and watch our game versus Swindon. I'm an exiled fan. So we're all traveling from various parts of England. Little did I know they'd arranged for me to be one of the mascots for the day. Photos are attached as proof. We'll chuck this on Twitter too. Embarrassing and hilarious. Mainly for my mates getting to heckle me, but I was secretly over the moon to beat my heroes, including Matty Dolan himself. Thanks, David. I think a 24-year-old, <laughs> at his height, being the matchday mascot, and proving it as well. Absolutely incredible. And there is photographic evidence of this, I can attest to. What yep. a story. He sent it in. He sent it in. I think, for, you know, if we all if we all held up a vote, so we've got... What 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 were the names? Can we remember? I've I've, I've sent you both the names of yours. Yeah, I got Sean and his trip to Croatia, and I've got Mike and his uh, trip to Wembley to watch City, despite being a Rovers fan, and then getting on the program of uh, the, the City program for the rest of that season. I've got Ethan as my first one, and Stephen Farley as my second. So I've had Simon. Which was the first one, which was Def Hemmerman avoiding some punches and he got out of the, uh, the, the, the Cardiff end just to see Cardiff score the winner. And then David Cakebread, um, which was the, 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 the entry for the, the mascot, 24 year old mascot. I think if we all write down on a piece of paper who we think is the winner of this, then it's as, it's as fair as can be then, isn't it? It's committee. So. Um, we all know each other's names. Let's write down who who we think is best. Right, so if we reveal in three, two, one. Monksy, what's yours? I, um, the, the mascot one. Yeah. So that's a unanimous victory for David. Um, we will upload the, the, the photos shortly, um, to, to Twitter and to Facebook because they are fucking fantastic. Um, sorry, look, I didn't mean to jump in there. David, in my opinion, should be sharing those boots with his mates because his mates have got fantastic banter. Yeah, his <laughs> mates have won in those boots, haven't they? Yeah, no. it, his mates have won in those boots single-handedly. And David, I salute your mates as well. I all, I'm gonna say, all I'm going to say, Ollie, is um, there could be a, a, a rather large mascot coming to the men very soon. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Ollie, when's your birthday? I'm not telling you. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't, didn't you say David is 24? That's the exact same age as me as well. Exactly. Oh, well, the coincidences are coming out. Oh, yes. My birthday. Yeah, I've got to say, though, uh, thank you to everyone that, that sent some in because, yes, yeah, so you can say we had a lot of entries there and there was some really, we only read out the, what we thought were the, the top ones, if you like, but there were some other ones that were fantastic as well. You know, they, they yeah. Didn't get 
they they were all really funny, weren't they? It, yeah, it was yeah. actually quite difficult picking picking ones that we otherwise because otherwise we'd have been like two hours of reading through <laughs> stories and that might have <laughs> got a bit great after a while. So, mind you, you're probably more interested in a squash. Well, <laughs> right. What we'll do is we will announce the Twitter winner as well. Um, and our random winner is how do we want to do this? Should we wait for a, for a drum for a drum roll underneath this producer? Give us a drum roll, bed. Our lucky random winner is. Andrea Ovi. Well done, Andrea. Is she a county fan? Do we know? Or? Andrea Ovi is a proud Newportonian. Um, and she is the winner of our random Newport County Mark O'Brien shirt giveaway. Um, I will follow her on Twitter in a second and say she's won. Um, and then she can just give us an address and then Monksy, you can just order onto her, yeah? Well done, Andrea. Round of applause, everyone. And well done to David, who won the mascot quiz, or the mascot. Um, <laughs> the mascot quiz. <laughs> well done, David. Yeah, well done. You won the mascot quiz. I don't know what a quiz was, but... Andy, did I just hear you speaking of quizzes? I did. I did mention quizzes. Ah, oh, I'm so professional, aren't I? Well, hang on. So you fucked up the link to talk about <laughs> a mascot quiz. Just so you could get in some sort of trail into your next um, item. Look him! He's only got four podcasts. He's talking about trails. He's talking about intros. He's, he's he knows what he's doing now. I've got my mic and my earphones now. Well, this is a professional operation. This is a professional operation. Are we on the Shiraz? Are we on the on the Rioja? We're on Comte Tolosan, and the the grape is Gamay. I'm on Gamay. Is that a Spanish, a Spanish red? It's French, it's right? 2%. French red. Yeah. I've got a nice sheer rat outside. I have got a lot. Outside? What, in the kitchen? Oh. <laughs> a nice South Australian sheer But you're keeping it cold in the Newport fashion, just leave it outdoors. You don't have red, you don't have cold red wine, you, you sacrilege. Uncultured swine. Ah. Oh. <laughs> right, so this week in Andy. Versus Oddie. We've I'm definitely got, getting, I'm definitely getting Kevin to do a better We've got the footballer game, which is not a flagrant ripoff of the same name as the jingle or the sting on Talksport. So if they want to sue us, <laughs> firstly, they've got to listen to two hours and 40 minutes of this shit. And secondly, they can fuck off. But. Yeah, Jim White. Yeah, fuck you. Yeah, fuck you, Rushton. But essentially. <laughs> It is the same game. So we're doing, I'm going to give you the dates played for and the games and goals scored for of three players and the clubs they played for. And you've got to tell me who the player is. I'll remind everyone, it's currently 2-0 to Ollie Dow. The first player is, producer, if you could just do like a little tension building sting underneath this, like a... Who's this for? Is this for me or for Ollie? Monk, you can go first. But first one to guess it. First one to guess the player wins. So it's best two out of three. Please try not to shout over each other because that'd just be a nightmare to listen to for the listeners. And the listeners can play along here as well because it's tough. So is everyone ready? Oh, brilliant. Ready. 
Monksy, you ready? Yeah, 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 yeah. Born ready. Right, so the first player to first person to guess this player wins the point. So if you could both sit in screen so I can see you're not googling it. Hands up actually. If you can just leave your hands up, that'd be great. Fantastic. Not like that, Ollie. That died in the nineteen thirties. <laughs> hands up. <laughs> hands up. Ollie, hands up. Give me up. Oh that was one, a what one for the kids there. That was a Heil Hitler joke, in case anyone missed it. Anyway, so the first player played for Plateau United in 1994. Then from 1994 to 1997, he played for Anderlecht, making 75 appearances, scoring eight goals. From 1997 till 2005, he played for Chelsea Football Club, playing 132 times. Kesman? Scoring five goals. It's neither of those. What did you say, Ollie? Rude bullet. From 2005 until his retirement in 2008, he played for Newcastle United, playing 47 times, scoring zero goals. That's not a bad shape, was it? John Dole Thomason? No. Ollie? Nobby Solano? No, you played for Villa as well, don't forget. So, I'll, I'll recap it for you. He played from 1994 till 1997 for Anderlecht, playing 75 times, scoring eight goals. 1997 till 2005, he played for Chelsea, 132 times, scoring five goals. And 2005 till 2008, he played for Newcastle, 47 games, zero goals. He was a defender. What kind of a guess at the goals? Tension building music in the background. Do you want his nationality? Winston Bogart? It wasn't Winston Bogart. Do you want his nationality? Yes, please. He was Nigerian. Celestine Babayaro? It was Celestine Babayaro! <laughs> 1 0 Monksy. Fantastic. Right, Monksy. So, Plateau United, they're Nigerian, so, I reckon they must be some kind of academy team there. Right, so, are we ready for player number two? Ollie, you have to win this to stay in the game. I'm so nervous. From 1998 to 2006, he played for Rotherham United, playing 128 times and scoring nine goals. So, what year? Sorry? From 1998 to 2006, he played for Rotherham United, 128 times, scoring nine goals. From 2006 till 2007, he played for Swindon Town, playing ten times, scoring two goals. In that same season, he went on loan to Hartlepool United, playing eight times and scoring three goals. From the end of the 2007 season until 2014, he played for Hartlepool United permanently, Playing 290 times and scoring 44 goals. Andy Monkhouse. It is Andy Monkhouse! Get in. What a shout. Get in. Good knowledge, Ollie. And then for the rest, it's 2014 2015 Bristol Rovers, 15 16 Grimsby Town, 16 17 Alfreton Town, 17 18 Whitby United, and then 18 until present Osset United. What a fantastic answer that was from Ollie now. I'm so nervous now, it's one all. 
here we go. The winner, or the, the, the final round here, is from 1982 till 1984, he played for Hebros, playing 32 times and scoring 14 goals. He left Hebros in 1984 and joined Chiska Sofia, or CSKA Sofia, from 1984 to 1990, playing 119 times, scoring 81 goals. From 1990 to 1995, you played for Football Club Barcelona. I know, it's Stoichkov. It is Horisto Stoichkov. <laughs> I got it after the second one, I can't think of his name. <laughs> Can we, was there any chance of playing that game when we were both alive? It was I, a little I, I bit. I was three to be fair. It was a little bit monkey friendly. Well, to be fair, you had two of those players, one of which was Celestine Babiaro, who retired in 2008, so the peak when you were into football, and the other was Andy Monkhouse, who played for your team. Yeah, and I've walked all over once on that one. And the other is one of the most famous Bulgarian players of all time. Yeah, once it was Sofia, obviously Bulgarian striker, I couldn't think of his name, and then he said to Barcelona when it came into my head. Oh, what a player we were. He's better than Pele at all. Yeah. I, thought, I thought you were going to say Andy Monkhouse is better than Pele, then. No. Andy Monkhouse has scored more goals in his garden than Pele. So I think that might be it, lads, unless anyone else has got anything that's happened to them this week that might be... Yes, I've got one on the board. Come on. Come on down, let's have it. Andy versus Ollie is now 2-1. I'm so nervous for next time, so I can't go behind that idea. (laughs) (laughs) So firstly, big shout out to Made by Tones for our new new album. Our, our cartoon that he's drawn us it, I think it's amazing I think we're going to use it for as many of the album arts as I possibly can over the next coming episodes um, secondly big shout out to our two winners um, the first one was David for his fantastic story the second one was Andrea for her just managing to retweet the tweet on fair play congratulations um, on that well done right. Andrea <laughs> we've got a very special guest coming on next week who's the guest? So we don't have a, a documentary, do we? Ollie, Ollie, introduce our guest. So our guest set to come on on the next recording is the Gloucestershire cricketer, James Bracey. And we're very looking forward to having him on and having a chat with him, all things sport, all things life, really. And he, yeah. yeah, look forward to it. All right, well, yeah, it was good crap. I enjoyed that. I enjoyed yeah, that. Good one. Good, good, good one. That's going to be a good one.